It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz. It's Memorial Day weekend, which means two things. First, tomorrow's Memorial Day. Duh. And second, virtually or in person, graduations are happening all over. So we'll be paying tribute to America's veterans and to the educational progress of its students in programs like X-1, The Eternal Light, The Columbia Workshop, Would You Believe, a work by Gertrude Stein, Our Miss Brooks, and The Life of Riley. And we'll have our weekly check-ins with Gunsmoke and Dragnet. So settle back, put aside any lingering worries from last week, it's over, and don't even think about thinking about next week. Instead, put your imagination to work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, the big broadcast. If you're America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, you think of things nobody else has figured out. That's why they pay you the big bucks. And they do pay him the big bucks, don't they? As evidence, we offer a case called The Touch-Up Matter from March 5th, 1961, CBS and the series Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Johnny, listen, Johnny. Oh, hold it. What? Well, let me switch on this bed lamp. No, listen, Johnny. Are you there? Oh, there we are. Hello? Yeah. Listen, this is Terry Holmes. You know, Star Mutual Insurance. What, at this hour? Listen, will you? I'm at a party, or what was a party. I want you to come over here right away. Oh, thanks, Terry, but I just had one. No, no, you don't understand, Johnny. I understand that unless I get some sleep, we're going to feel mighty lousy in the morning. Johnny, this is... 2 a.m.? Yes. Put on some clothes and get over here right away. Get over where? The Chadwick residence. Mr. and Mrs. Bruno Chadwick. Out here on Wethersfield Avenue. You know, out of ways beyond Colt Park. Chadwick. Yes. That great big mansion that... Yes, yes, that's the one. The big colonial job that sits back from the street about a quarter of a... Well, well, you know where it is, so come on. Who got murdered? Nobody, but the company will probably murder me if we have to pay off all the claims on this one. Well, now, what kind of claims? On what, Terry? On the biggest jewel robbery that has ever been pulled in this town. Happened just four, five, six minutes ago. Have you called the police? Yes, we've called the police. Now, get out here, will you? Johnny. All right, Terry, all right. Right away. CBS Radio Network brings you Bob Reddick in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the Star Mutual Insurance Company Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the touch-up matter. Expense account item one, lack of sleep. 
I hauled myself out of bed, got dressed in a hurry, and then used my own car to drive to the Bruno Chadwick south of town just off Wethersfield Avenue. Mansion is right. The big old home is one of the local show places. Must have 35 or 40 rooms. It's just as good as the day it was built. Instead of the butler, Terry Holmes let me in the front door. He led me across the marble floor of the entrance hall and then into a huge mahogany panel library. Okay, now sit down, Johnny. Let me tell you what happened. All right. Hadn't I better check in with the police? Who's in charge? Lieutenant Barney McQuaid. But now listen. Now, where are they? In the music room with the Chadwicks and all their guests. But I can tell you what's happened in half the time it would take you to get it out there with all those excited, chattering females all trying to talk at once. You should hear them. Yakety, yakety, yakety. Oh, what females, Terry? This party's the Chadwick's 40th wedding anniversary. The guest list, and I don't know how I ever happened to be on it. Well, the guests include most of the ritziest, wealthiest people in Hartford. Real big money. Mr. and Mrs. Lloyd Augustus Brownfield, for instance. Oh, the stock market millions? Yes, and the Fritz Melchiors, the Lawrence Comstocks, Kenneth Gordon Hodge, that old dowager Marianne Hooper, half a dozen more. Just think of money, and you've got the whole list. Except for Mr. Thompson B. Thompson. Who's he? Who knows? He barged in early this evening, just about the time the festivities were getting underway. Said he was up from New York and staying at the Pearson Motor Court. You know, the other side of town? Yeah, I know the place. Okay. Said he wanted to talk over a business deal with old man Chadwick. Apologized for not having made a date with him. And when he saw there was a party in progress, he apologized again and said he'd come back another time. But Mrs. Chadwick took one look at him, and believe me, Johnny, this was the polished gentleman of, well, if there ever was one. And good-looking, too. Yeah. Well, she talked with him a minute or so and then insisted he join the party. So he did. What's more, he was the life of the party. And that's why it lasted so late. Tall, young, handsome, charming. Uh, all those wealthy old biddies practically fought each other for a chance to talk with him, sit next to him. And all the while, Johnny, that stinker was carefully casing the hundreds of thousands in jewelry they were loaded with. So how did he pull it off, Terry? We were all sitting around in the music room trying to keep politely awake while Mrs. Price, Mrs. Jackson Lee Kenworthy Price, squawked out the 10th or 15th encore in that crow-like voice of hers. Believe me, Johnny, it was murder. Well, onward and upward with the arts. Oh, sure. Anyhow, while everybody was quietly shuddering over an impromptu condenser, she was thoroughly mangling somewhere in the middle of uh, our sweet mystery of life, I think it was. I wouldn't swear to it. Yeah. Suddenly, the lights went out. Go on. Well, for about three seconds, there was some blessed silence for a change. And then old lady Chadwick let out a shriek that was even worse than Mrs. Price's singing and started hollering about her diamond necklace. Then Mary Ann Hooper yelled something about her emerald pendant. Then three or four of the others all practically on top of each other. By the time old Chadwick got the lights back on again, that charming, lovable Mr. Thompson B. Thompson was gone. And with him, nearly two million bucks in jewelry. Any police been able to find out anything about this, Thompson? Well, not very much. Not yet. What? How are you, Johnny? Well, hi, Lieutenant. Boy, you should hear them in there, Johnny. Holy smoke, they sound like a yard full of chickens with an army of hawks descending on them. That's pretty good, Lieutenant. So I thought I'd hole up in here until one of the boys I sent over to that motel checks back with me. Uh, the motel where this Thompson B. Thompson claimed he was staying? Yeah, that's right. Didn't you phone the place? Yes, and the manager told me that he's registered all right and drives the same kind of a car he used to come over here. I see New York. No, that's just the point. Connecticut plates. Uh, that's... Maybe that's Conroy now. Mind if I listen in? Be my guest. 
McQuaid. Conroy, Lieutenant. Yes, Conroy. Those plates. Yeah. The manager here gave me the number on them. Yeah. I checked them with headquarters, Lieutenant. They're on the stolen car list. I see. Then there's no point in your staying there at the motel. No, sir. I guess he's far away, but... Hey, hold everything, Lieutenant. Yes? Hello, Conroy. Listen, car just came in the driveway. Looks like his, maybe. Yes? Okay, now, as soon as he gets inside, go out and check that license. Call me back. Don't try to apprehend him. Right, sir. Call me back. Well, this may not be so tough as that. Wonderful. Sounds like a cinch. Sure. And yet, if he was clever enough to crack this party the way he did... Lieutenant, did the people inside there give you a pretty good description of him? Description? Better than that. Look at this. A snapshot of him. Good. How'd you happen to get this? Hey, I remember. Right after dinner, Mr. Chadwick took a lot of these pictures with one of those self-developing cameras. Yeah, that's right. He was snapping everybody, handing them out right and left. Well, Thompson didn't object to having his picture taken? No, oh, jumped at the chance. Now, if Conroy calls back and says... There we go, John. I'll listen over your shoulder again. McQuaid. Conroy again, Lieutenant. That's Thompson's car, all right. I mean, the one he stole. All right, now, Conroy. That's uh, Thompson, one inside the motel room. Looks just like the picture you got. He's in there now. Okay. Don't disturb him. What do you mean? I mean, don't disturb him. Unless he tries to make a break for it. Then stop him any way you have to. Yes, sir. I'll be right over. Okay, Johnny. Want to be in on an easy kill? Easy kill, huh? Absolutely. Any bets? <laughs> The lieutenant, one of his men and I, hopped into a prowl car and tore on over to the Pearson Motor Court, going into the driveway as quietly as possible, with the lights off. Conroy was there, he was waiting, and he led us over to in front of unit number seven. You're sure he's still in there, Conroy? Yes, sir. I see. There's a stolen car, still there. Oh, hi, Chris. Hi, Look, Lieutenant, you can see him moving around inside. I mean, a shadow against the shade. Maybe packing up for a fast getaway. All right, now, I'll take the door. Conroy, you cover me on this side. Chris, you and Mr. Dollarkin. What am I talking about? Listen, Johnny, you have no business being in on this. If Thompson gets rough, if he's armed... So what? Go ahead, start pounding on the door. It'll be on your own responsibility. So I'm a very responsible guy. Not bad, William. Okay. I'll be careful. You too, Chris. Thompson? Come on, Thompson. We know you're in there. Open up. The police, Thompson. You open this door or we shoot our way in? Well? Boys, hit the door. Okay, Lieutenant. All right, Thompson, come on. What the devil? Well, Lieutenant, it looks Bird has flown the coop top of this lamp. This pinwheel affair. Yes, you're right, Johnny. Heat from the lamp makes it turn. Was the moving shadow that we saw there on the window shade. Well, I'll be a monkey's uncle. Well, here's how he got out, Lieutenant. With this open window back here. Yes, for once, you're right, Conroy. The question is when. Well, now, what do you know? Maybe i better go out and keep an eye on his car, Lieutenant. Yeah, do that, Chris. Well, Conroy, thanks to your stupidity. Oh, now, Lieutenant. Okay, okay, I'll have to admit you couldn't watch both sides of this place at once. Anyhow, our friend Thompson is safely away with four necklaces, 
One emerald pendant. One bracelet. One brooch, Lieutenant. Yes, that's exactly what. Dollar. Charlie, where'd you get those? Lying here on the floor under the table. Anything missing? Three pendants. Did you know the emerald in this thing is worth nearly half a million, Johnny? I can believe it. Son of a gun, it's all here. You know why, Lieutenant? Because he must have somehow found out that I was outside, keeping an eye on him. So what happens? He knows he can't get away with it, so he drops the loot and he makes a break. I hate to admit it, Conroy, but you're probably right. For once, your stupidity paid off. Oh, Lieutenant, what do you mean, my stupidity? Well, possibly what the Lieutenant means is the way you parked your police car right there at the side of the driveway huh? where Thompson could see it when he drew it. Oh, 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 well... Don't bother with excuses, Conroy. There are none for a boner like that. Yes, sir. Well, shall we get this stuff back to the owners? The wealthy old ladies were tickled pink to get their expensive baubles back. And a look of relief on Terry Holmes' face was really something to behold. He'd been quietly sitting alone in the library, adding up the two million-odd dollars he thought his company would have to pay out. But there was nothing quiet about the music room. Yes, well, thank you, ladies, thank you. But now the, the boys and I had better... You're wonderful, Mr. Dollar. I just don't know how you did it. Oh, I just knew when Mr. Holmes said he was bringing you into the case, I just knew you'd get our things back. Well, boy. now, look, Miss Chadwick, the real credit for this should yes, go... sir. I just told the lieutenant, Mr. Dollar, we're... Certainly proud of you. Well, now, Mr. Chadwick, I... If there's anything I can do for you any old time, just you ask for it, my boy. And you did it all so quickly. It's just wonderful. Well, now, you're sure they're all here, Mrs. Chadwick? No stones missing, anything like that? We've checked them, every single one. Well, good. You're just wonderful, Mr. Dollar. Well, I wish you ladies would thank the lieutenant if he and his men hadn't got there so quickly. Oh, I... now, you're too modest, Mr. Dollar. No, no, no. It's a fact. Just because I happen to see the jewelry lying there for... Well, uh, you tell them how it happened, Lieutenant. Well, the boys and I are going to get back to headquarters, folks. Oh, but not before you tell us all the details. Yeah. Yes, please, Lieutenant. Tell us just exactly. Well, now, now, please, please. Oh, Come on. Come in. Sit down. I was just about to go out and rescue you, Johnny. Oh, Terry, you still here? Yeah, I kind of thought you'd get your fill of that yakety-yak out there. Want the butler to fix you a drink? Just push that little pink button on the desk. Well, you're real happy now, aren't you, Terry? Why not? Look at the money the company won't have to pay out now. Order a drink. Hey, call the lieutenant in for one. Lord knows he deserves it. Uh, he'll need more than a drink when he gets time to realize the big part of his job is still to be done. Now, what do you mean by that? I mean running down this Thompson character. Cares about him now, now that the stuff is back. I it? do, for one. And you know something? I got a couple of ideas. Oh? Like what? Well, take that picture of him. Oh, uh, beg your pardon. This picture. I forgot to give it back to the lieutenant. Looks exactly like him, Johnny. Tall, slim, kind of ramrod. I mean that straight sort of military bearing, slick black hair, neatly trimmed mustache. That's the guy. Almost pretty, though, isn't he? Almost like he used makeup to look younger than he really is. Why not? Didn't those old biddies out there really flip over him? And he didn't mind having his picture taken. Why? Don't ask me. And why did he tell everybody where he was staying? He certainly knew he was going to pull this job. Hey, you're right. And another thing, too. What's that, Johnny? Where was he between the time he left here and when he finally arrived at the motel? Mm -hmm. That policeman, Conroy, had plenty of time to get there before Thompson did. 
What's more, he didn't hesitate to calmly walk into his room in spite of a prowl car parked outside. And why did he go back to the motel at all? Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of funny. Sure it is. And it all adds up to one big, fat, powerful hunch. Hooray. So what are you going to do, Johnny? Well, first of all, since your company has it all so nicely insured, I'm going to borrow that jewelry. Huh? Just until sometime tomorrow morning, Terry. I don't think anything will happen to it. Well, it better not. Go on in there and pry it loose from all those gabby old ladies for me, will you? Go on, Terry. Now, what's the matter? Okay, whatever you say, Johnny, but I sure hope you know what you're doing. Yeah? So do I. At 9.30 the next morning, I dropped in at the small store of a jeweler by the name of Caldwell. His eyes almost bugged out of his head when I casually laid the pile of trinkets on the counter and asked for an appraisal. But when he put a loop in his eye and started to examine them really carefully... No, no, I can't believe it. Amazing, so beautiful. But I can't believe it, Mr. Dollar. You can't believe what? Paste imitations, but... The... Most magnificent imitations I ever saw. To gain time. And the settings, the work of an artist. Sure, to gain time. Uh, what? He knew that nobody would ever question these until they were sent in to be cleaned, whatever that might be. Well, I don't understand, sir. So he'd have all the time he needed to leave town quietly without any excitement or any suspicion. Uh, Mr. Dollar, This uh, which might not be realized for months. Well, I'm afraid I don't understand. Huh? Good morning, Lieutenant. Uh, Miss Caldwell, Dollar, I've been looking all over for you. Yes, and knowing I had the jewels with me, started looking in all the jewelry stores. That's right. Well, I hope not too many of them. What? Here, would you like to return these to the owners now? Sure, only Except I... for Mrs. Chadwick's. I'll take her necklace back myself. I'll see you, Lieutenant. Well, now, uh, wait a second, I'm Charlie. sorry, but I don't think I'd better well, waste any time. I... No, oh, uh, Mr. Uh, Caldwell, maybe you'd better tell him about those jewels. I certainly shall. Huh? Now, Johnny! From that moment on, things slipped so neatly into place I could hardly believe it. First, of course, I returned the necklace to Mrs. Chadwick without telling her, not yet, that her stuff was only paste. And I only wish there was something I could do to show my gratitude. Well, there is, Mrs. Chadwick. Well, what's that, Mr. Dollar? Well, I'd like to borrow that camera that makes the pictures right after you snap them. Why, of course. Also, I'd like to know where you have this fine jewelry clean. Oh, at Richter's, that big place on High Street. We wouldn't think of taking them anywhere else. We? Oh, yes, all the ladies you met last night. Oh, thank you very much. What? At the big jewelry house on High Street, I showed my credentials to Mr. Richter himself and told him what it was all about. He was a bit shook up for a moment, and then he led me into a large, well-lighted shop at the rear. Eighteen or twenty highly skilled craftsmen were bent over individual tables, covered with little layers and grinding wheels and lots of equipment that I'd never seen before. They were creating, or cleaning and repairing, various pieces of fine jewelry, or drawing designs for pieces yet to be made. Richter told the men to pay no attention to me as I walked among them, taking pictures, supposedly a magazine article. And finally, we stopped at the bench of a lean, rather bald man of middle age who was hunched over a vice, where he was mounting a huge ruby in a ring. And uh, this is Ernest, really uh, new with us, but one of our finest stone setters. Designs and makes all the mountings himself. Ernest? Uh, don't let us interrupt your work, Ernest. Oh, thank you, sir. 
Uh, we are going to miss you, though, when you leave for that job in uh, Philadelphia, is it? Yes, sir. Uh, but I'll be here another week or so, Mr. Rick. Oh, yes, that's right, that's right. I think I'd like your pictures standing up, Ernest. Standing, sir? Yes, if you don't mind. Do you? Why, uh... No, of course not, sir. Uh, right next to Mr. Richter, please. And uh, stand up straight, huh? Uh, I'm afraid that bending over my work all these years... Oh, come on, stand up straight, like this. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Good, that'll do it. Uh, Mr. Richter, might I ask what this is all about? Now, we'll give this about a minute. I'm afraid I don't understand, well, sir. don't worry, Ernest, you will. Now, Mr. Richter, yes? as soon as this picture develops, if one of your artists will do a little retouching for me... Well, of course, Mr. Dollar. What? Mr. Dollar? That's right, Johnny Dollar. The investigator. Yes. Retouching, you said? To put a sort of wig on this picture of your slick black hair and a trim little mustache, maybe a dark suit. I see. I kind of think it'll match the other one, the one that Mr. Chadwick took of you at his party last night, don't you, Ernest? Or is it Thompson B. Thompson? Why, Ernest, what's the matter? You don't look well. Mr. Dollar knows why. Real clever, wasn't it, huh? Get all that priceless jewelry in here for cleaning and make those perfect copies, and then in your makeup and dark suit, you stole the real ones last night, left the phonies behind, and really threw the police off the track. Let's get this picture out of here so we can prove the disguise that you use. No, it uh, won't be necessary, Mr. Dollar. Uh, As they say in the movies, I'll go along quietly. The gems he'd stolen, how he picked them off the apartments, and then took them along to police headquarters. Funny, Lieutenant McQuaid even forgot to ball me out for having kept that first picture of Ernest. Expense account total? What expense accounts? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. For next week what might have been a pleasant trip across the country if it weren't for a killer gunning for me. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Reddick, written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr. Musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Heard in our cast in order of their appearance were Jim Stevens, Carl Frank, Lawson Zerby, Bill Lipton, Elspeth Eric, Gene Gillespie, Guy Rep, Raymond Edward Johnson, Louis Van Ruten, and Bob Dryden. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Wally King speaking. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and The Touch-Up Matter from the late winter of 1961 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. To use an old joke, I seldom use any other kind, you can't exactly call Nelson Riddle an unsung hero. 
Among the singers who were backed by his musical arrangements were Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Judy Garland, Johnny Mathis, Rosemary Clooney, Doris Day, Dean Martin, Peggy Lee, and Linda Ronstadt. Whew. There's another big name that belongs in that list, and we're going to hear it in just a moment. The day after tomorrow, June 1st, would have been Nelson Riddle's 100th birthday. That means he came along toward the tail end of the golden age of radio, although, interestingly, he was involved in one of the attempts to revive commercial radio drama at the end of the 1970s, Sears Radio Theater, later the Mutual Radio Theater, for which he composed a stirring theme. In the late 1950s, he put together an orchestra for a couple of installments of the U.S. Treasury Department series Guest Star, a show designed to sell government bonds. We're going to hear a slightly abridged version of one of those programs, and it's a joy to hear Nelson Riddle, perhaps the greatest of all popular song arrangers, with that other master singer I didn't mention earlier, Nat Cole. You'll hear a somewhat uncharacteristic nod to rock and roll by Maestro Riddle in the opening instrumental number, Mail Call. Then Mr. Cole sings. It's a wonder to me how a Nelson Riddle arrangement is always creative and always expressive without ever getting in the way of or competing with the singer. From November 16, 1956, it's Nelson Riddle and his orchestra with Nat King Cole on the syndicated series Guest Star. <laughs> United States Treasury Department presents Guest Star with Nelson Riddle and his orchestra, yours truly, Del Charbon, and starring Nat King Cole. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Del Charbon, your host for Guest Star, a transcribed feature for defense bonds presented by this station as a public service. Every payday brings a profit to the men and women who belong to the payroll savings plan for the automatic purchase of United States defense bonds. Pay yourself first through payroll savings where you work. In just a moment, our star, Nat King Cole. To get the show on the road, Nelson Riddle and his orchestra lead the way with Mail Call.
And now, our star. That tremendously popular recording favorite, Nat King Cole. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to be back on Guest Star to help sell defense bonds. Right now, I'd like to start with a little number called Walking My Baby Back Home. To be in our lake, walking my baby back home. Arm in arm over meadow and farm, walking my baby back home. We go along harmonizing a song, or I'm reciting a poem. I'll go by and they give me the eye. Walking my baby back home We stop for a while She gives me a smile I snuck with her head on my chest We starting to pet And that's when I get Her talcum all over my vest After I kind of straighten my tie She has to borrow my comb one kiss, then I continue again, walking my baby back home. So I have to park outside of her door till it's light She says if I try to kiss her she'll cry I dry her tears all through the night Hand in hand to a barbecue stand Right from her doorway we roam Eats and then it's a pleasure again Walking my baby Talking my baby, loving my baby. I don't need maybe walking my baby back home. Now for fellow bond buyers. Everywhere I'd like to sing. A beautiful ballad called Somewhere Along the Way. I used to walk with you Along the avenue Our hearts were carefree and gay How could I know I'd lose you Somewhere along Would always smile, hello No love like our love, they say Then love slipped through our fingers Somewhere along the way 
I should forget But with the loneliness of night I start remembering Everything you're gone and yet There's still a feeling deep inside That you will always be part of me So now I look for you Along the avenue And as I wander I pray That someday soon I'll find you Somewhere along the way I should forget But with the loneliness of night I start remembering Everything you're gone and yet There's still a feeling deep inside That you will always be part of me So now I look for you along the avenue And as I wander I pray That someday soon I'll find you Somewhere along the way Somewhere along the Thank you, Nat King Cole. Well, now let's turn the spotlight on Nelson Riddle and his orchestra. It's Reveille in Harlem. Guest Star, a transcribed program for defense bonds presented by this station each week as a public service. May I express our thanks to our star, Nat King Cole, and to Nelson Riddle and his orchestra for a fine show. We'll have another famous guest on hand next week, so I hope you'll join us. Meanwhile, this is Del Sharbert saying so long and reminding you to save more in safe, sure United States defense bonds.
Remember, they're now even better. Nelson Riddle, accompanying Nat Cole on guest star in the fall of 1956. Maestro Riddle, who passed away at the age of 64, would have turned 100 years old this Tuesday. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Online or in person, commencement speeches are happening all over the country these days. Valedictorians including the daughter of radio's fictitious Chester A. Riley, from whom we'll hear later tonight, will be thanking their teachers. And I'd like to think that most of them will be sincere in doing so. Well, we'd like to pay tribute to our hardworking educators, too, especially after the most challenging school year of our lifetimes. We thought we were honoring teachers a few weeks ago with a certain episode of Our Miss Brooks, but we ended up airing a different installment than the one we'd planned. So we apologize, and to make up for it, we're playing that episode tonight. And I'll repeat what I said then. The show includes references to some name-brand foods, rye crisp, shimmering jello, and the snap, crackle, and pop of Rice Krispies cereal. You'll hear the age-old American song, The Old Gray Mare, and mentions of the actor Rita Hayworth, and the Gallup opinion pollsters who used to canvas door-to-door. I noticed the phrase horse's neck in the script. I'm pretty sure it means a tedious person, but I'd love to hear from you if you can confirm or correct my definition. In any case, to applaud teachers everywhere, here from CBS and starring Eve Arden is the November 7, 1948 episode of Our Miss Brooks. I'm Olive Soap, your beauty hope, and luster cream shampoo for soft, glamorous, dream girl hair bring you Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. (laughs) Our Miss Brooks teaches English at Madison High, and though she's fond of her work and her pupils, these last few days have been rather hectic. In fact, she's even had to neglect her favorite faculty member biology teacher, Philip Boynton. And when I have to neglect Mr. Boynton, you can be sure things are hectic. Of course, like most scientific men, he's rather preoccupied. But he doesn't spend all his time looking at frogs and white mice in his laboratory. No, indeed. Every Friday, he goes to the zoo and looks at frogs. (laughs) But in spite of his apparent absorption in scientific matters, I can't help feeling that deep down underneath, there's a definite lack of interest in me. (laughs) But I keep trying. Now, take this past week, for example. I had to get the midterm examinations ready, but I wanted desperately to get my work done by Thursday afternoon so I could keep a date we had for that evening. But maybe I'd better start at the beginning. Thursday morning, my landlady, Mrs. Davis, woke me promptly at 7.30. Oh, Connie, it's 7.30. You've got to get up. Come on in, Mrs. Davis. (sighs) Time to rise and shine, my dear. Oh, I may rise, but you'll have to get your own shine. (laughs) I'm glad you got me up on time, though. Maybe I can make up a few questions before my first class. I don't think you should do anything before you finish your work at school. You've been going at this midterm examination too hard, Connie. I don't like to scare you, but I'm worried about your health. Oh, it's sweet of you to take such an interest in me, Mrs. Davis, but work doesn't bother me. I'm healthy as a horse. 
Well, just the same. Overwork isn't good for anyone, even a horse. You wouldn't want to get... You wouldn't want to get gray around the mane, would you? Oh. <laughs> Heaven for Finn. But I figured I'll be all right if I keep my Fetlock shampooed regularly. <laughs> uh, luster cream shampooed, that is. You've got to build yourself up, Connie. Here, I've brought you some juice to drink before breakfast. Taste it and tell me what you think it's made of. I should know better, but here goes. <coughs> oh, Ooh, that's stronger than usual. What's in it, Connie? Well, I would say you took a raw potato, one hard-boiled egg, some rye crisp, a cup of kidney beans, and some spinach, and threw them into the mixmaster. You're slipping, dear. You forgot the hominy grits. <laughs> well, I think I'll skip the juice this morning, Mrs. Davis. I've got to hurry. Walter Denton's picking me up in his car. Oh, is yours in the shop again? Oh, definitely. But the repair job this time won't cost me as much as the fine I had to pay. Twenty dollars for parking. Twenty dollars? Where in the world did you park? The lobby of the Stevens Hotel. <laughs> but how did you ever get in there? Just like anybody else, through the revolving door. <laughs> I'm glad you picked me up early, Walter. I've got some work to get done before my first class. Oh, that's all right, Miss Brooks. Glad to be of service. But did you say you've got work to do before your first class? Yes, Walter. I'm preparing questions for your midterm exams. It's rather difficult getting the right ones. Well, if I may make a suggestion, why don't you forget about the difficult questions and think up the simple ones? <laughs> that would make it easier on you, wouldn't it? Yes, but frankly, I question your motives. I wasn't thinking of myself, Miss Brooks. It's just that I've been looking at you while I'm driving here out of the corner of my eye, sort of, and, well, you... Walter, look out for that truck! Oh! Sorry. Guess I looked out of the wrong corner. <laughs> anyway, I've noticed that you've changed a little. Changed, Walter? Yeah. I remember when you first got to Madison High, Miss Brooks. You were so vibrant. You were actually pulsating with life and energy and... Well, gosh, you always seem to be sort of shimmering. And that's not all. I come in six delicious flavors. <laughs> I'm not kidding, Miss Brooks. You've got to watch your step. How long do you think the bloom of youth will cling to your cheeks? It's all according to how you put it on, Walter. <laughs> I hope you don't think I'm being too personal, Miss Brooks, but as I look at you, I can't help thinking of something. What's that? Did you ever drive out in the country and come to an old, deserted pasture? Well... And I... did you ever see at the end of the pasture one lonely old horse with sad brown eyes <laughs> staring over the fence rail? I knew I should have shampooed those fetlocks. <laughs> I'm not comparing you to a horse, Miss Brooks. I know, Walter. I'm not fast enough. Hmm? <laughs> no, it's just the look the horse gets in his eye when he's all worn out. As if to say, I've done my work, and now I'm old. Just an old, tired, beat-up, lonely horse with nothing to show for my years of faithful service. It's his own fault. When he was young, he probably made a man's neck out of himself. <laughs> oh, I appreciate your interest in me, Walter, but believe me, I'm not ready for the glue factory yet. I hope you're not offended, Miss Brooks Oh, of course I'm not, Walter You know how I feel about you Gosh, I think you're a thoroughbred 
just don't want you to get run down. <laughs> I won't, Walter. I'm used to hard work. I've been working since I was a young girl. Really? I didn't think they let girls work way back in those days. <laughs> that is, what kind of work did you do then? I helped my mother, mostly. They had mothers in those days, too. Well, what did you do for your mother? While father was out hunting dinner, I used to help clean up our cave. You sound a little sore, Miss Brooks. Oh, don't be silly, Walter. Why should I be sore? Well, the way I word things sometimes, it's a little unfortunate. Like the stuff about the horse and all. I know you meant it for my own good. Forget it, Walter. I have. Well, here we are. I'll find a place to park, Miss Brooks. You go ahead. Thanks, Walter. Oh, before you go... Yes, Miss Brooks? Got a piece of sugar? <laughs> Daddy, you're the principal of this school, and you've got to do something about it. About what, Harriet? About what I've been talking about. Miss Brooks overworking. I was talking to Walter Denton, and he told me that Mrs. Davis told him that Miss Brooks is just killing herself. But, Harriet, Now, I... one way to scare a woman into doing something or not doing something, for that matter, is to make her think she's losing her looks. And another way is to get her interested in doing something other than the thing you want her to stop doing. It's as simple as that. That isn't simple enough. What are you talking about, Harriet? Look, Dad, we've got to try and get Miss Brooks interested in something outside of schoolwork. Now, I'll talk to Mr. Boynton first. Then as soon as I find Miss Brooks, I'll send her in here to talk to you. Agree? Absolutely not. Good. I knew you'd see it my way. <laughs> That's the end of the period, boys and girls. Class dismissed. Miss Brooks, could I talk to you for a minute? Certainly, Harriet. Come on up to my desk. Miss Brooks, as one woman to another... I'd like the privilege of being frank with you. Go ahead, Harriet. Well, you're working too hard, Miss Brooks, and it's beginning to show. Where? Well, <laughs> I don't mean you're falling apart physically or anything. It's just your attitude. Since these midterm exams have to be written, you're almost constantly preoccupied. You don't seem to have your old sparkle and crackle. Oh, great. Now I'm a bowl of cereal. <laughs> I know conditions in school are pretty awful nowadays, and, well, you've got a big load to pull. Here we go again. <laughs> Idiot, Miss Brooks. There's a look you get sometimes, like a... Oh, don't say it, Harriet. Oh, I wouldn't hurt your feelings for the world, Miss Brooks. There's nothing really radically wrong with you. It's just that you're taking this exam too seriously. Why, I noticed you yesterday in the cafeteria with Mr. Boynton. He just seemed to nibble at your food. Oh, that's just to make Mr. Boynton feel at home. He's very fond of rabbits, you know. <laughs> you should forget about work when you're at lunch. Today I want you to relax. Sit down at that table and really tie the feed bag on. <laughs> I'll cut those fetlocks off, that's what I'll do Oh, by the way, Miss Brooks, Daddy would like to see you in his office Mr. Conklin? What does he want to see me about, Harriet? Oh, I'm sure I don't know Maybe as principal of this school, he feels it's his duty to keep his teachers happy Of course, you've got to know how to handle Daddy What do you mean, Harriet? Just take the bit in your teeth and don't let him drive you too hard <laughs> Okay <laughs>
in. Oh, it's you, Miss Brooks. Have a chair. Thank you, Mr. Conklin. I was just finishing this report from the school board. Will you excuse me for a moment? Certainly, sir. Oh, she is so. Oh, excuse me, Miss Brooks. Hello? Hello. Is that you, Osgood? Oh, yes, my dear. I'm glad you got my message to call me back. I just wanted to remind you that this afternoon we're going, uh, you know where, for tea. Oh, you mean to Mrs. Davis's. I haven't seen Margaret in ever so long. Miss Brooks will be there, too, won't she? Yes, Martha. That's the purpose of the little gathering, to help that party get her mind off. Well, that is, uh, she's been working quite hard lately, and she looks like... That is her face, <laughs> Confound it, Martha. I can't talk now. Oh, sure you can, Mr. Conklin. Just make believe I'm deaf, too. <laughs> I'll call you later, Martha. Goodbye. Goodbye, Osgood. Oh, uh, just one thing. Yes? If you see Miss Brooks, don't say anything about our dropping in today. That's surprise her. Yes, Martha. Goodbye. <clears throat> that was my wife. She sends her regards, Miss Brooks. Oh, thank you, Mr. Conklin. No doubt you're wondering why I sent for you. Well, I'll be brief. During the war, my outfit had the most consistently high morale of any unit in Camp Bobrick, Ohio. Now, what has all this to do with you, you ask? A reasonable question. What has all this to do with you? I really don't know, Mr. Conklin. Of course you don't. Now, take the time we ran out of ping-pong balls. It was nobody's fault. (laughs) As supply officer in charge of the post exchange, I had discharged my duties faithfully. But still, there it was. No ping-pong balls. (laughs) There were murmurings from the men. Muttering and discontent swept through the recreation hall. But I refused to be thrown into a panic. Do you know what I did, Miss Brooks? I made those men use their heads. Weren't they a little big for (laughs) ping-pong? I mean, uh, how, Mr. Conklin? By finding another hobby. And that's what I called you here to tell you, Miss Brooks. You've got to find a hobby. Oh, but I have a hobby, Mr. Conklin. Oh, what is it? Collecting a biology teacher. Uh, that is, Mr. Boynton and I go to the zoo every Friday. I'm afraid that isn't enough of a change for you, Miss Brooks. No, what you've got to do is learn how to relax. Have a good time. Oh, but Mr. Conklin... Don't I... interrupt. You've got to concentrate on some outside interest, Miss Brooks. Fun. That's what you've got to have. Fun and gaiety. You've just got to enjoy life more. Be merry. Laugh. Laugh! (laughs) I don't know just what sort of form your hobby should take, but you've got to get one. You've got to, Miss Brooks. Oh, please, Mr. Conklin, remember your blood pressure. Uh, I'll get one. I'll have a ginger peachy time. I'll go to Arthur Murray's. I'll do something. You wait and see. Good. Good. That's all I want, Miss Brooks, for my teachers to be happy. Contented and happy, not nervous. I don't want a school full of nervous wrecks. You hear me? No nerve. No long face. We <laughs> understand each other. Do we? Hmm? Yes. Huh? Yes. Do we? Yes. Do we? <laughs> Before I go, Mr. Conklin, uh, may I make a suggestion? What is it? Did you ever think of getting a hobby? <laughs> cafeteria is pretty crowded today, Miss Brooks. I don't know how you managed to get this table. Oh, it wasn't hard, Mr. Boynton. I just told the two students who were sitting here I'd flunk them if they didn't leave. (laughs) Oh, you wouldn't do that, Miss Brooks. 
No, not actually. I'll get our lunch, Miss Brooks. Just tell me what you want. Oh, I'll go along. It's fun to shove the little tray along the little railing. Gives me a feeling of power. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'd rather you sit here and take it easy. I've noticed how hard you've been working, Miss Brooks, and now that I see you, uh, there's, there's something in your eyes lately that... Well, I can't be specific, but they just seem to say... All these years of faithful service, and what have I got to show for it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I, I know you've got to get your exam questions set, but the race isn't always to the swift. You've been whipping yourself terribly. Oh, fine. Now I'm my own jockey. <laughs> now, I just want you to know, Miss Brooks, that if, if there's anything troubling you, anything at all, I'd be happy to have you cry on my shoulder. I'd rather laugh up your sleeve. I mean, <laughs> laugh on that shoulder. Oh, look, Mr. Boynton, it's nice of you to be so concerned, but there's nothing wrong with me. You're right. There, there isn't a thing wrong with you that a good hobby won't cure. Yes, I know. And I've thought of a wonderful hobby. Oh, what's that, Miss Brooks? It's called short ribs of beef and boiled potato. Would you get me some? <laughs> I certainly. You hold our places here and I'll be right back. Okay, Mr. Boynton. Well, let's see now. Where's that book of questions in English lit? Maybe I can get a little work done while I'm waiting. Hi, Miss Brooks. Eat lunch yet? No, Walter, but Mr. Boynton's getting me some. Oh, and then I won't sit down. Good. <laughs> Have you seen Harriet Conklin? No, not since this morning, Walter. Uh, she seems to have noticed my disintegration, too. Really? Mine has been the swiftest decline since the fall of the Roman Empire. <laughs> Tell me something, Miss Brooks. Did you ever collect stamps? No, I never did. Then you're in for a treat. See you later with my album. We'll put in a few hundred new specimens I just got. A few hundred? Oh, look, Walter, I'm allergic to mucilage. You better stop at the delicatessen and pick up a spare tongue. <laughs> yeah. Well, so long, Miss Brooks. I'll see you after school. So long, Walter. Oh, what's the use? I'll just have to lock myself in a room if I want to work. Oh, hello, Miss Brooks. Have a nice chat with Daddy? Yes, Harriet, a nice apoplectic tete-a-tete. Your father told me to get a hobby. Have you hit on one yet? No, not yet. Oh, I'm glad. I've got one you'll just go mad for. Patternless crossword puzzles. I'll bring a big, super special one over this afternoon. See you then, Miss Brooks. Goodbye, Harriet. And goodbye to my date with Mr. Boynton tonight. Oh, did someone mention my name? Oh, hello, Mr. Boynton. Hey, those short ribs look good. Yes, they do. I hope you like to eat them the way I do. Plenty of horseradish. Don't mention it. <laughs> well, let's begin. Here's your dish, and here's your knife and fork. Oh, thank you. That was good. What's for dessert? Miss <laughs> Brooks, you didn't bolt your lunch down already. I'm afraid I did, Mr. Boynton. I've got to get some work done before my afternoon classes. Well, this is terrible, Miss Brooks. You're, you're all keyed up. Look, do you play chess? Not if I can help it, Mr. Boynton. Well, I'm not very good at it, but it's wonderful relaxation. I'd be happy to teach you if you... Yes, well, some other time, Mr. Boynton. Now, if you'll just hand me my check. Oh, oh that's all right, Miss Brooks. I'll pay, uh, pay your check for you. Oh, thanks, Mr. Boynton. Uh, you can give me the money later on. <laughs> I didn't get much of my test prepared at school, Mrs. Davis, so I've got to get to work right now. That can wait. I've got the yarn right here and two sets of extra-large needles. Just look at them. My seconds will call on you at dawn. (laughs) What in the world are those foils for, Mrs. Davis? I'm going to teach you to knit. With this equipment, it won't be any time at all before you have yourself a nice afghan. 
I don't want myself a nice Afghan. Give me an American boy every time. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> it's just wonderful for the nerves, Connie. Just sit right here and help me roll this skein into a ball. Oh, but Mrs. Davis, I... I do it for you, Connie. Oh, all right. What do I do first? Just hold your hands about six inches apart. That's the girl. Now I'll start winding. Around and 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 around. Wait, what's the matter, Connie? Nothing. I just wanted to break the monotony. Now tell the truth, Connie. Isn't this fun? Oh, yes, indeed. This is more fun than drawing your fingernail over a slate. Now that we've got a ball, I'll show you how to cast on. What did you say, dear? Oh, it's the cat. Go away, Minerva. We're busy. Oh. <laughs> Maybe she wants some milk. No, she just had her lunch. I made it for her myself. Maybe she wants some bicarbonate. <laughs> now, the first thing we do is catch the yarn onto one needle. So, like this. Mm-hmm. And like this. Mm-hmm. Oh, now, don't unwind the yarn, Minerva. Be a good girl now. Yes, Minerva, be a good girl, and I'll boost you up to the goldfish bowl later on. <laughs> Look, Mrs. Davis, if it's all the same to you, let's let Minerva knit for a while, and I'll play with the ball. Uh-huh. <laughs> you'll catch on to it in no time, Connie. Oh, I really must get some work done. If you'll excuse me, I'd like to go into the dining room. I can spread my reference books out on the table there. Hmm? Very well, Connie. We'll do some more knitting, but the dining room? Oh, I knew there was something I forgot. You better get in there right away, Connie. You've got company. That's what I like, prompt messages. Well, hello. I guess I beat you home, Miss Brooks. I guess you did, Mr. Boynton. So did I, Miss Brooks. Harriet, did you two come over together? Yes, we did. Oh. I drove them. Oh, listen, Walter, too? (laughs) Well... Now that we're all here, suppose we all keep nice and quiet while I do some work. Hmm? Oh, you can work later, Miss Brooks. Here, I've got the board all set up. Let me show you how to play chess. So go ahead, Miss Brooks. I'll start sorting my stamps and looking for prize specimens to show you. And I'll get a crossword puzzle started, so it won't be too difficult oh, for you. Oh, but listen, The first I... row here, the, these little ones here, are pawns. They move one or two spaces forward. I know the moves of the pieces, Mr. Boynton, but honestly, well, I let's just, just don't play have... one game, Miss Brooks. I'll go first. There. Now, don't rush yourself. Chess is a very patient, easy-going game. Have you got a clean handkerchief, Miss Brooks? I have to clean my magnifying glass. Here you are, Walter. Oh, Miss Brooks. Yes, Harriet? What's a six-letter word for horse? Have you tried B-R-O-O-K-S? <laughs> oh, I've got an E-Q-U-I-N-E. Look at this sesquicentennial Dutch Guiana, Miss Brooks. You can tell by the cancellation it's legitimate. Oh, look through the glass. Oh, very pretty, Walter. It's your move, Miss Brooks. What? Oh, the game. I'll just go here. Oh, here's a funny coincidence, Miss Brooks. I need a six-letter word for hobby. M-U-R-D-E-R. <laughs> Boy, look at this one. I'll bet there aren't three like it in the whole country. Is that good? I'll get it. Well, Martha Conklin and Osgood. Hello, Margaret. Where's the hobby room? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in the dining room here, Osgood. Come along, folks. Here we are. Miss Brooks, guess who's here? Dr. Gallup looking for a new hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Conklin. Well, let's not waste any time. We'll get right down to our hobbies. I brought over a bag of toys to be fixed for Christmas. 
I do this work every year. And I help, Mrs. Conklin, with my portable carpentry set. Uh, may I set my vice up over here? Oh, yes, Mr. Uh, Conklin, of course. I'm going to dump these toys out on the table, if I may. There. There we are. That's not a legal move, Miss Brooks. Well, I was just... Oh, the chess game. I'm sorry, Mr. Boynton. I'll take it back. I'll move my knight instead. There. Ah, this will do you a world of good, Miss Brooks. Give her a broken toy to fix up, Martha. Think you'd like to stuff a few dolls, Miss Brooks? I'd just love to stuff a few dolls, Mr. Conklin. Before you do that, Miss Brooks, take this glass and look at this early camera room. What's a four-letter word for purgatory? Harriet. Well, that's got... <laughs> that's got seven letters. Oh, you mean Harriet. The, the night can only go two squares vertical and one diagonal. Oh, look at this cute little mechanical man. He can walk and everything. I'll just wind him up. There. Give me some of those pool toys to plane down, Martha. Here you are, dear. Are you having fun, Miss Brooks? Oh, loads, Mrs. Conklin, but would you call the little mechanical man back? He's biting my knitting needles. <laughs> His electric drills are beauty. Oh, I think it was a wonderful idea, Daddy, our having a hobby afternoon together. Oh, so do I, Osgood. It's so entertaining. Sure takes your mind off things. I'd better saw some of this down here. What do you mean, Mr. Boynton? The knight can only move two squares vertical. Oh, here's an awfully cute little wagon. It'll be as good as new when we fix the bell. There. Martha, could you show me that new drop stitch you mentioned last week on the phone? Oh, that wasn't a drop stitch, Margaret. Uh, that was a cable, I believe. These loose nails will never do. Never do. Motor seems to be broken on this. Uh, you can tell by the shape of the printing that this is a genuine letter word for Billy Go. This horn is fine now. Yeah, a little more planing and drilling should do it. Well, that does it. The last toy is fixed. Yes, and the dolls are all stuffed and painted. Uh, it's been a lovely afternoon, Mrs. Davis. Thank you, Osgood. It was nice to have you over. Well, the main thing, of course, is that we were able to interest Miss Brooks in something that could take... Uh, Miss Brooks? Miss Brooks? She isn't here. Well, that's funny. Where could she be? I'll answer it. Hello? Hello, Mrs. Davis. This is Miss Brooks. Connie! Where in the world are you? I've discovered a wonderful hobby, Mrs. Davis. What is it, Connie? Making up examination questions in the balcony of the bijou. Eve <laughs> Martin as our Miss Brooks returns in just a moment. But first... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight, show him how much lovelier your hair can look after a luster cream shampoo. Only luster cream brings you K. Dumas' magic formula blend of secret ingredients plus gentle lanolin. Gives loveliness lather even in hardest water. Glamorizes your hair as you wash it. Luster cream, not a soap, not a liquid, but a dainty cream shampoo. Leaves hair fragrantly clean, free of loose dandruff, glistening with sheen, soft, manageable. Gives new beauty to all hairdos or permanents. Four-ounce jar, one dollar. Smaller sizes, either tubes or jars. Tonight, 
Try Luster Cream Shampoo and be a dream girl, dream girl, beautiful Luster Cream girl. You owe your crowning glory to a Luster Cream Shampoo. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, I didn't get many questions done, but I did see Rita Hayworth in Loves of Carmen. I knew, of course, that with the examination question still to be done, I'd have to cancel my date with Mr. Boynton. But that was almost inevitable from the beginning. When I finally reached home, I knew I'd have to buckle down. So I headed right to the dining room, opened the door, and turned on the light. Of course, you can move the night too horizontal. Why, Mr. Boynton... If I'd known you were still here, I'd never have turned the lights on. (laughs) For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North. Tune in Tuesday evenings over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at the same time for another comedy episode of... Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Our Miss Brooks, the hardest working teacher in show business from the middle of fall 1948 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer and Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. Every so often, a Gunsmoke episode reminds us that CBS had tasked its producer, Norman McDonnell, with creating a Western version of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, which, in turn, was based on Raymond Chandler's famous fictitious Private Eye. Tonight's story is one of those episodes, involving some real detective work from Marshall Dillon. The episode's called Bone Hunters, and it comes from December 11, 1954, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely.
funny, Mr. Dillon. Oh, what is, Chester? Look up the street there. What? Coming out of the long branch. Yeah, come on. I don't understand it. I didn't hear no gunshots. Well, that man they're carrying got hurt somehow, Chester. If he'd only passed out drinking, they'd probably left him under the bar and stood on him to improve their reach. Oh, I've seen that happen, Mr. Dillon. I've really seen it. Now, look, there's Doc with him. Well, he's got better ears than I have if he heard any gunfire. Now, there are other ways of killing men, Chester. Oh, yes, sir, that's true, Mr. Dillon. I saw a man killed with a bullwhip once. Oh, that was you bad. You men carry him up to my office. Okay, the door's okay. open. I'll be long as soon as I talk to the marshal. Okay, take him on the Matt... You'd better get into the long branch, or there's going to be more of this. What happened, Doc? That's Bill Zant they're carrying. I don't know him. Well, neither do I. But that's what they said it is. Well, it doesn't matter what happened to it. Well, he's been cut bad with a bowie knife. Who did it? Now, that big drunk buffalo man, Noli Meeker. Noli Meeker, huh? Is he still in the long branch? Yes, he is, Matt. And you watch out for him. He's in a mighty dangerous mood. Did you see it? Well, I saw part of it. I was in there having a beer when it happened. Zant had a knife, too, but Noli Meeker knocked it out of his hand. Oh, then Noli did this himself. No, he didn't. Everybody says Noli started it. Well, I've got to go and take care of Zant before he dies. Now, you watch out for Noli, Matt. Nobody can get anywhere near him. Come on, Chester. I saw Noli Meeker drunk once, Mr. Dillon. He sure does get mean. Mean enough to start killing people? Yes, sir. Hey, but when he's sober, he always seems plenty calm. I just don't know what happens to him. Well, that's what happens to other people I don't like. Being drunk's no excuse for murder. No, sir, it sure ain't. See what he's Oh, look at him. He's got the whole bar to himself, Mr. Dillon. And... Oh, that bloody knife in his hand. How are you going to take him? You'll stay here. Evening, Nolly. Get away from me, Marshal. Why don't you drop the knife, Nolly? You're in enough trouble now. I killed Zant, didn't I? I'll kill you next. Zant isn't dead yet, Nolly. And I'm going to have to keep you in jail till we find out if he's going to live. I ain't going to jail. Not if I have to cut me a path all the way out of Dodge. If Zant dies, you murdered him. You're not leaving Dodge. Now, you can't be so drunk you don't understand that. Come on, Marshal, let's fight. What, my six-gun against your bowie knife? You wouldn't have a chance, Nolly. Now, why don't you calm down before you get hurt? You go get yourself a knife. No, I'm not going to go get myself a knife. Okay, we'll fight this way. Forget about fighting, Nolly. I can cut good with this knife, Marshal. I can throw it, too. Stop it, Nolly. Didn't know that, did you? Watch. Well, you don't throw too good when you're drunk. Nolly. Pretty good today, do you, Noli? Leave me alone, huh? I got a head like I've been sleeping under a buffalo. Yeah. 
Well, you don't deserve it, but I brought you some coffee. I put it right there. Uh, I'd do better on a pint of triple X. You sure learn hard, Noly. Go away. Go away. Let me sleep, Chester. Hmm. Last time I scalded my thumb bringing him coffee. Eating great. Well, how's our prisoner this morning, Chester? Well, I don't think it's the liquor so much as the way you hit him, Mr. Dillon. Allie had it coming. He sure did. That knife couldn't have missed you more than an inch. I still don't know why you didn't shoot him. Well, how would it look for me to shoot somebody that didn't have a gun? Besides, I don't think Nolly really knew what he was doing. I ain't sure he knows yet. Good morning, Matt. Chester. Oh, Doc. How's Zant coming along, Doc? Well, that's what I came to tell you, Matt. Zant's going to live. Huh? He's going to be awful thin for a while, but but he'll live. Uh, bring Nolly in here, will you, Chester? Yes, sir. Nothing vital was cut, Matt, but the man bled so much. It took me over an hour to get it stopped. And for a while there, I thought he'd surely die. You know, it's too bad there isn't some way to get blood back into a man when he loses that much. Well, I don't know how you could do that, Doc. Oh, if I could. I'd save twice as many lives as I do. Well, I'm going to go to bed, Matt. It's been a long night. Thanks for coming down, Doc. That's all right. complaining about sleep, Nolly. You've just escaped years and years of it, whole centuries. I'll take that on any time, Chester. What'd you want, Marshal? You sober enough now to tell me why you took your knife to Zant last night, Nolly? Personal matter? Well, maybe you better tell me whether it's personal or not. I'm not gonna turn you loose to go stab him again. Turn me loose? You didn't kill Zant. He's gonna live. Now, what were you fighting about? A woman. Is that all? You got something against women, Marshal? That's not what I meant. I've known you for a long time, Nolan. You never seem like the kind of a man who'd try to kill somebody over a woman. When I'm drunk, I get mean, Marshal. I'll fight over anything. Even a woman, huh? Now you're fogging me up again, Marshal. Okay. Why did you know Zant? We've both been working for Ezra Marcy. Collecting buffalo bones? We gather them up off the prairie and bring them back to Dodge and sell them to Marcy. And he ships them back east on the railroad. It's beyond me how they can make fertilizer in China and stuff out of them old buffalo bones. Nolly, you and Zant work together, is that it? No. I got my own wagon... He's got his. But I still don't like him. You gonna leave him alone? Marshal, I wouldn't hurt nobody less than I was crazy drunk. You tried to kill me too, do you know that? I did? Oh, Mar- Marshal, I don't believe that. You threw your boy knife at me. And you're lucky I didn't shoot you. I shouldn't have done that. Well, you start drinking again and I'll throw you in jail as soon as I see you. All right, you can go now, Nolly. But you came awful close to hanging. You just remember that. Well, my pa always said I'd hang. I won't cause no more trouble, Marshal. 
long, Chester. Goodbye, Nolly. Mr. Dillon, do you believe that about them fighting over a woman? Oh, there might be more to it than that, Chester. Why don't you ask Zan about it? Well, if Nolly's lying, Zan will lie, too. But whatever they were fighting about, I doubt that it's over. He hurt Zan too bad for that. Kitty. You waiting for the stage to come in? No. No, I just got tired sitting in my office. That's a funny thing about your job. No? You're either doing nothing, sitting in your office, or standing around the plaza like some bum. Or you're the most violent man in Kansas. <laughs> well, it's a good thing I don't get paid by the job, isn't it? You'd starve. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Hello, Marshal. Hello, John. But still, nobody could ever pay me enough to go against Noly Meeker and his knife the way you did a couple of weeks ago. Well, I could have shot him, Kitty. No, you couldn't. Not you. That's just what'll get you hurt someday, Matt. Or worse. Look, Kitty, I'll die when my time comes, just like everybody else. Matt, I'll feel better when I get some breakfast. Oh, haven't you eaten yet? I don't get up as early as some people. <laughs> I'll go with you, Kitty. I could use a cup of coffee myself. Oh, wait, here comes Ezra Marcy. Looks huh? like he wants you. Morning, Miss Kitty. Marshal. Hello, Marcy. Marcy. <clears throat> I got a job for you, Marshal. Oh? I wish I'd never made a deal with them men. Neither one of them. Oh, you mean Zant and Noli Meeker? Them. They've been complaining and fighting more than they've been gathering buffalo bones for me. Oh, well, why don't you deal with somebody else? Most men would rather hunt for hides than bones, Marshal. Pays better. I buy both, so it don't matter to me, but... Even so, Zant ain't been much use since Noly cut him up. Now he, uh, he ain't no use at all. Why not? Noly's got a shack down past the opera house at the edge of town, Marshal. Let's go ask him. He got drunk again last night. I thought you were talking about Zant. It's about Zant I want to talk to Noly. Oh, why do you need me? Noly killed him, Marshal. What? Zant was due in with a wagon load of bones this morning, and he was late. So I rode up the river to look for him, and I found him, sitting on his wagon with a hole through him, like a sharp's 50 he'd make. You think Noly did it? Well, Noly tried to kill him before, didn't he? And he come in with a load of bones yesterday, and I paid him off, and he went and got drunk. Of course, Noly killed him. Does Noly have a sharp's 50? He used to be a hide hunter until he got tired of it. It was a sharps that killed Sandra. Anybody can tell that. Yeah, I guess they could. That Noly Meeker's a murderer, Marshal. You go arrest him. Did you leave Zant at the river, Marcy? I ain't gonna bury him. Come along and show me where he is. All right, I'll send somebody out to bury him, but let's go find Noly. I don't want no murderer to get away. I'll talk to Noly later. No. No, we'll get him first. We're going to the river, Marcy. Now. I went by the office and picked up Chester, and he and I followed Marcy up the river. Zant had stopped in a little cottonwood grove. Apparently, the water is oxen, a couple of miles above Dodge. And we found him there. Slumped over the seat of his big Studebaker wagon, shot in the back. 
The wagon, piled high with sun-bleached buffalo bones, was headed toward the river. But the oxen had stopped when Zant was hit and were standing patiently, waiting for their next command. We laid Zant's body onto the sand, and then I had Chester lead the oxen down to the water. A few minutes later, he was back. You gonna bury Zant out here, Mr. Dillon? Alice has got a place as any. While we're fooling around here, Noli's probably on the run. I'll find him, Marcy. But I don't know how I'm gonna prove he did it. Well, you got all the proof you need. What if he's got a good alibi? What if he can prove he was someplace else when this happened? Marshal... Now, I ain't gonna miss Zant, but I ain't gonna watch a murderer go free, neither. I'm kinda against murder myself, Marcy. You're awful slow showing it, wasting time coming out here and all this talk about proof and such. I'm telling you, Marshal, if you don't see Noli Meeker hung for this, I will. Lynch talks something I won't stand for, Marcy. Now, don't make it around me and don't start making it around Dodge. You're threatening me, Marshal. I don't threaten people. I warn them. You know me. You know what I mean. We'll go find Noli and see what he has to say. Tester. Yes, sir? We'll send somebody out for the wagon and those oxen. They can stand here a while longer. They've had their water. Well, you know, that, that's the funny thing, Mr. Dillon. Them oxen didn't drink no water. They didn't? No, sir. And they hadn't been to the river, neither. There wasn't no tracks between where they were standing and the river. Then why was Zant heading them toward the river? I don't know. But you'd think Zant would have known if they wasn't thirsty. Of course he would. Well, I guess it don't matter much, Mr. Dillon. I'm not so sure, Chester. I'm not sure at all. But let's go find Noli. This is it, Marshal, right here. I just hope Noli ain't awake and watching us out of one of them cracks. You can ride back if you like, Marcy. No, no, I want to be here when you talk to him. Okay. talk to you, Noli. What's Marcy here for? You're still drunk, ain't you? No, I ain't drunk. I done slept it off. Were you drunk last night, Noli? I didn't cause no trouble last Were night. Were you drunk? Of course I was. I didn't see you in any of the saloons. Well, I was out here, sitting on the ground. I was sitting right there against the wall, me and a friend of mine down to jug of corn whiskey. Took us most all night. What did you want to know for? You had a friend with you? 
here till about an hour or two ago. Who was it? Well, you don't know him. He's an old Indian, a Cheyenne. Where is he now? He's on his way home. Where? Absaroka Mountains. Absaroka Mountains in Wyoming? Well, that's what you're doing here. Looking for him because he run off the reservation down south. Well, you won't find him, Marshal. That old Cheyenne's traveling alone and he lives like a wolf. You'll never find him. No, I don't expect we could. Well, there goes his alibi. Alibi? What are you talking about? About Zant's murder. Zant's murder? You'll hang for it now. Wait a minute, Marcy. Zant was shot in the back with a Sharps 50 this morning, Nolly. A couple of miles up the river. Marshal, you're thinking I did it? Well, you tried to do it once before. I didn't kill him, Marshal. If an I was to kill a man, I wouldn't do it that way. I ain't no coward. Arrest him, Marshal. He can do his talking in jail. I didn't do it, I tell you. You know I ain't that kind of a man. I ain't a good man, but I ain't like that. Okay, Nolly. I believe you. I couldn't prove it anyway. Now, look here. Shut up, Marcy. And you remember what I told you. I don't want to hear any talk out of you. Come on, Chester. There's something I want to do in town. down here to the depot, Mr. Dillon. Well, I want to talk to Sam Vestal, Chester. Just hope he's in. Uh, Hello, Marshal. Chester, come on in. All right, Sam. Fine, Chester. What can I do for you, Marshal? Sam is agent for the Santa Fe Railroad. I figured that you might know something about Ezra Marcy's bone shipments out of here. Uh, Well, what is it you want to know, Marshal? Well, I want to know if there's been any trouble about him. It sure has. But how'd you know? Marcy told me not to say anything about it. Tell me about the trouble, Sam. Well, the buyers back east have been calling Marcy a crook. But I know he ain't, Marshal. I weigh them loads myself, and I'll personally guarantee they ain't short on weight when they leave here. But they are short when they arrive back there, huh? Mm, Some of them are. Uh Zants. How'd you know that? I guessed it. Well, you're right. I checked on it for Marcy. And it's the loads Bill Zant brings in that come up short back east. Marcy pays Zant by the load, doesn't he? Sure, sure, but it made Marcy terrible mad being called a crook like that when he ain't one. If you ask me, maybe it's them fellas back east. They're the crooks. All Marcy wants is to be paid for the weight of the bones he ships out of here. They come up short back there. Ain't his fault. Uh-huh. Oh, well, thanks, Sam. I'll go talk to Marcy about it. I, uh... I think maybe I can straighten this whole business out now. Marcy's coming, Mr. Dillon. I found him in the Texas Trail. You know what he was doing? What, Chester? 
stirring up a bunch of men in there about how they got to go get Noly Meeker. He was telling them you ain't going to do nothing about it. I'm going to do something about it. Here he comes. It's no use, Marshal. You can't stop me now. I already got ten men in there on my side. Well, that's 11 to 1 against Noly, isn't it? We shouldn't have much trouble taking him. Except for one thing. You ain't gonna stop us. I'm stopping you right now. All I gotta do is yell. And they'll be out here, Marshal. Marcy, I had a talk with Sam Vestal down at the depot. What? The bone Zant's been hauling in. They've been losing weight on their way back east. All right. So he told you. That's my trouble, Marshal. I'll handle it. You've already handled it. What are you talking about? You're scared to death, aren't you? I don't know what you're saying. Those oxen weren't thirsty at the river. Zant wasn't headed for water because of them. It was to soak those sun-dried buffalo bones. You figured it out too, didn't you? Waterlogged, they weigh in heavy here, but by the time they're weighed again back east, they're dried out. Zant was a crook. Yeah, sure he was. But you shouldn't have murdered him, Marcy. Me? Murder him? I'm arresting you for it. Oh, no. No, you ain't. I'm going to take your gun, Marcy. No. No. He shouldn't have tried that, Mr. Dillon. He's about the poorest gunfighter I ever saw. Yeah, he was slow, Chester. But he'd have killed me if I'd let him. Why'd he try it? I don't know how you could have proved he murdered Zant anyway. I couldn't. But Marcy was feeling so guilty and so scared he didn't stop to think. If he had, he might have bluffed the whole thing out and gone free. Now it was his own guilt that did him in, Chester. Transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Bill James and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Herb Ellis, and Frank Cady. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, Fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Tuberculosis can attack at any age, and it can invade any home, rich or poor. But Christmas seals fight tuberculosis. Help protect you, your family, and all of us from our country's number one infectious killer. This year, use Christmas seals on your cards and packages. Why not go home for the holidays with Perry Como? That's the title of Perry's new RCA hit record, and he'll sing it for you next week. Perry invites you to be his guest every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
Remember, listen again next week for another story of the Western Frontier when Marshal Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's drama. It's Gunsmoke. This is the CBS Radio Network. A couple of meditations on mortality and maybe a metaphor in that Gunsmoke episode, Bone Hunters, from the late fall of 1954. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Check out our website at bigbroadcast.org. And by all means, visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. In order to provide us with a wide assortment of cases, Sergeant Friday and his partner Frank Smith, unlike most real-life police detectives, frequently switch assignments, going from the robbery division to the bunco squad to juveniles and so forth. Tonight, they're in the homicide division for a mystery called The Big Death. It comes from March 29, 1955, NBC and the series Dragnet. Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A man has been shot in a cheap hotel in the downtown area. There's no apparent motive for the attack. No lead to the identity of the assailant. Your job? Find him. It was Tuesday, January 11th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. I was on my way into the office, and it was 5.26 a.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Yeah. We just got the house, Skipper. Mm-hmm. Well, he's on the way in. That's right. Wait a minute. Yeah, here he is now. Uh-huh. No, I haven't called him yet. Well, I didn't say anything. Okay, we'll keep in touch with him. Right. Bye. What do you got, anything? Yeah, shooting over on 5th. As soon as I check the crime lab, we can roll on. Mm-hmm. Who's the victim? A guy named Arthur McNeil. WMA, 62 years. Did he say anything? No, he ran out. Huh? Six bullets in his head. The Garnett Hotel was located on 5th Street between Turner and Banning. It was an old, run-down building. A wooden sign over the entrance advertised rooms, 75 cents per night. Weekly rates available. Frank and I climbed one flight of wooden stairs that led to the lobby. By the time we'd gotten there, two black and white cars had arrived, and the uniformed officers were attempting to restore some sort of order in the place. We talked with them briefly, and then we met Mr. Ted Brendel, the night clerk who'd placed the original call. I know what's going on, I tell you. No reason for me to try to hide nothing. I ain't mixed up in it. We didn't say you were. What? I say we didn't say you were involved. We just want to find out what happened here. Oh, come on into office. Can't hear a word you're saying. Come on. Come on, talk in the office. Now then, can hear yourself talk. Sit down. Thank you. Just throw the clothes on the floor, toss them down, and take a seat. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now about the shooting. I was just finishing up, and all of a sudden I hear these noises. You know, like, pow, pow. Loud, sharp. Yeah. 
Wasn't sure what they was at first. A lot of noise around here all the time. People falling out of bed, bottles breaking, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It was loud enough, though, I figured I ought to take a look, so I went upstairs. Yeah. A couple other people were out in the halls trying to find out what the hullabaloo was all about. Wasn't anything to let everybody know. Yes, sir. Then I come to Mr. McNeil's room, 319, on the left. Mm-hmm. Door was open, wide. I looked in, there he was. McNeil? Yes, sir, laying right on the floor. Just kind of sprawled around like he'd just dropped there. Yeah. I called to him. He yelled. Light wasn't on the room, couldn't see too good, didn't know right off, then I went in. Yes, sir. Dead. Mm-hmm. Called the cops, told them there was a killing, said for him to come right then. Did you go in the room at all? Well, just to look at Mr. McNeil. As soon as I saw what happened, I turned around, run to the phone, called the cops. What can you tell us about this, McNeil? Oh, not much to say. Quiet. Didn't cause no trouble. Didn't drink. Paid his rent on time. Mm-hmm. You have any relatives in town that you know of? Didn't hear him say nothing. Is there anything else you might tell us about him? No, nothing right off. All right, thank you. You going up to see the room now? That's right. Sure don't make much sense. What's that? Why anybody do it? Plain little guy. Nothing about him make him stand out, take any notice. Mm-hmm. Mind his own business. Got along with all the guests. Wasn't anybody paid any attention to him. You got it wrong. What? Somebody did. a.m. The crew from the crime lab arrived and began their investigation of the murder room. A canvas of the area was started in an attempt to find somebody who might have seen the killer. Frank and I went up to room 319. The appearance of the room indicated that there'd been a struggle before McNeil was killed. Clothing was scattered around the floor. Tables were overturned. The bedding had been ripped from the bed and then torn apart. Pictures had been removed from the wall. Books were scattered all around the place. The drawers from the small desk in the bureau had been ransacked. Papers had been thrown around. While Lieutenant Lee Jones continued his investigation, Frank and I talked with the night clerk, Ted Brendel. Do you know if McNeil carried large sums of money? Huh? Did McNeil carry much money with him, would you know? Don't know if I can answer that. He never did flash any of it around. Guess he had enough to live on, though. Told you before, he always paid his rent on time. Yeah. Do you have any close friends you know of? Only met one. Who was that? Girl. You know her name? Well, ain't exactly a girl either. Guess she's around 50. A couple of times, McNeil took her out to a movie or something. They came in, he went upstairs, changed his clothes, and her and me, we talked. Mm-hmm. I guess he saw something kind of interesting in her. Myself, I couldn't, though. Kind of dumpy, you know? Mm. Seemed to like her, though. A couple of other times, he talked about her, said how she was so nice, seemed to understand him. How about her name? Uh, let me think for a minute. Uh, Clara. Yeah, it seemed like that was it. Clara. You know where we can get in touch with her? Well, the way I remember, she lived in a hotel down the street near 6th. Did you know the name of the place? Uh... Eldridge, I think it was. Not real sure. If you ask down there, they ought to be able to tell you, though. Name's Claire or something. What if we could use your phone? Sure, in the lobby downstairs. I'll call. All right. Hey, you got to have a dime. It's a pay phone. Yes, sir. Gee, they sure made a mess. Did McNeil get much mail while he was here? No, a couple of letters. You know who they were from? Some law company here in town. Must have been good. You know how they have the name printed up in the corner of the envelope? Yeah. Embossed. Mm, must cost him something. You remember the name? No, can't get a picture. Did McNeil drive a car? Uh-uh. Used to take streetcar to work. Know that because he used to talk about the people he met. He got real sore when it rained. Told me he couldn't stand the smell of wet wool. Said there ought to be a law that nobody could wear wool clothes when it rained. Well. <laughs> he was a funny little guy. Got real definite ideas about things. That's so? Oh, yeah. Made up his mind and stuck to it. Like the envelope. Well, what's that? The envelope he had a couple of days ago. Wanted to put it in the hotel safe. Told him he didn't have one, just got the steel boxes. You know, one for each room in case the guests want to check something. Yeah. And we got those. And when he found out, he decided to keep the envelope himself. Did he tell you what was in it? No, just acted kind of mysterious, like it had something real valuable inside. 
When he found out there wasn't a safe, he told me he'd keep it with him. But he didn't give you any idea what was in the envelope? No. No, just uh, plain white, little, you know, like you mail a letter in. Yeah. How about, you find a woman? Yes, sir. Uh, see you in a minute, John. Yeah. Want to excuse it? Sure. What do you got? Well, I checked the hotel. The woman's name is Clara Fabian. Yeah. She checked out 30 minutes ago. You say where she's going? No. Clerk said she was pretty upset. Yeah. Said something about a death in the family. Frank and I went over to the Eldridge Hotel. We talked to the manager, and he told us that the Fabian woman had left hurriedly. We checked her room, but we found nothing to indicate where she might have gone. We called the office and had the name run through R&I. We found she had a record listing several drunk arrests and two convictions on bunco charges. Her picture was pulled and shown to Ted Brendel. He identified her as McNeil's friend. From her package, we obtained the name of a sister living in the Los Angeles area. 7.21 a.m., Frank and I drove out to talk to her. At first, she refused to tell us anything, but after questioning, she admitted that she'd heard from Clara Fabian that morning. She'd called to say that she was checking into a hotel on South Spring Street. When we got to the place, the desk clerk told us we'd find her in the coffee shop. I guess that's her. Yeah, it matches the description. Yeah. Clara Fabian? Yeah. What do you want? Police officers would like to talk to you. I want nothing to do with no cops. This is my partner, Frank Smith. My name is Friday. I told you, I don't want to talk to you. Go away. Afraid we can't do that. Why? Some kind of law? Don't know what you're after, but I ain't going to help you. And my fellow guys like you all the time giving me nothing but trouble. I'm clean. Don't owe nobody nothing. Now leave me alone. You know a man named Arthur McNeil? You're going to get out of here. All right, Miss Fabian. If you don't want to talk here, we'll go downtown. What about McNeil? You know him. Yeah. When did you see him last? About midnight. Where? We had dinner. A couple of drinks. I drove him home. How well do you know him? He wants to get married. Do you know where he worked? At his own place. Some kind of chemicals. Can you give us the address? What are all the questions about? Something wrong? Police matter. Why don't you tell me what this is about? Questions you're asking. For all I know, I might be saying the wrong thing. Well, if you tell us the truth, you won't be saying the wrong thing. Oh, I got your word on that. What's the matter? Something happened to Arthur? Yeah. What? He had an accident. Where? Down at the chemistry place? No, at his hotel. What'd he do? Fall down the stairs? No. Wouldn't be surprised the way he lushed up last night. Boy, I never saw him so loaded. That's all? Yeah. A couple of drinks and he's on his way to outer space. Only takes two or three. Mm-hmm. He had more than that when I met him. Some kind of a celebration. What for? Hmm? What was he celebrating? Some kind of an invention he was working on. Told me it'd taken him over five years, but he did it. Said we'd be on the easy street. Big pictures about the money pouring in. All we could use. Yeah. That's what caused the fight. Mm-hmm. You see, all the time we've been going together, he's been giving me that line about lots of money. How he was going to make this invention and be a millionaire all the time, talking like that. Yeah. One look at him and you know it was all in his head and nothing to it. I told him to stop it. Told him a hundred times. Didn't do any good. Finally blew up. I couldn't take no more. This was last night, huh? Yeah. We had dinner and he showed me an envelope. Said it was the invention in it. Big deal. He's going to be rich. Went on and on about it. I tell you, I think he was a little cracked. Wanted to drive to Vegas right then, get married. 10.30, and he wanted to leave then. Very right. I told him he was off the beat. I got it right to his face. Mm-hmm. Made him mad. Real sore. I think a lot of it was the booze. You know, courage. He can't handle drinking at all. Yeah. Told me that if I didn't go with him right then, we'd call the whole thing off. Stop seeing each other. Mm-hmm. I told him it was all right with me. Never meant to get married anyway. It's something to do to pass the time. 
I wouldn't have really got married. And what happened then? I took him home. Dropped him at the hotel. Where'd you go then? Back to my place. Got ready for bed. I guess it was about 11 when he called. Real mad. Carried on. Yelled and screamed. And said I'd be sorry. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't take it anymore. And I hung up right while he was talking. A couple of minutes later, he called back. I wouldn't answer the phone. And then when it stopped ringing, I told the boy at the desk not to ring my room anymore. Yeah. It didn't bother me at first. And then I got to thinking about it. A little crackpot. I tried to do something. So I decided to get out. That's why you left the hotel. Yeah. The way he was lushed up, things he said. No way of knowing if he was going to cause any trouble. All I knew was that I didn't want no part of it. Yeah. Just an accident. Something serious? Yeah, that's right. In the hospital? No. Well, how bad's he hurt? As bad as you can get. This isn't a joke, is it? No, it's no joke. If it is, I don't think it's very funny. It's no joke, lady. He dead? That's right. He do it himself? Looks like he had some help. Poor old guy. It's kind of funny to think about it now. I used to figure he was cute the way he was always bringing me presents. Oh, not big, you know, but like a bunch of flowers or a book, little thing. Mm-hmm. Funny to think about it. I can hardly imagine him being dead, poor little guy. You know who did it? Not yet, no. We hope you might be able to help us. Why me? Nobody seems to know much about him. Can't find any close friends. Nobody would want to see him dead. You never talked about anybody to me. Did you ever mention a lawyer to you? No. Can you give us any idea where he worked? Well, you mean the chemistry place? If that's the place, yeah. Uh-uh. Never said exactly. I think it was some kind of store, though, with the windows painted. He talked about the invention, said he had all the stuff to make it with, but he never told me where it was. All right. Anything else you can tell us about him? No, nothing. All right, thanks, Miss Fabian. For what? For what you have been able to tell us. It don't seem like it's going to be any help. Are you sure this ain't some kind of a joke? No, ma'am. And he's really dead? Yes, he is. Yeah, poor little guy. Well, if you think of anything, we'd appreciate a call. I'm going to leave you one of our cards. Oh, thanks. I remember something else. She'll let you know. All right. Can you tell me how it happened? He was shot. Oh, maybe it was an accident. You know, whoever did it didn't mean to. No, it's not likely. Maybe. You've heard where a gun goes off, somebody killed. All the time you read about in the papers. Gun goes off accidentally? No, not six times. Frank and I went back to the office. We called the crime lab and talked with Lieutenant Lee Jones. He told us that they'd been unable to find anything we could use at the scene of the killing. He said that the victim had been shot with a thirty-eight caliber revolver. In going over the room, his crew had found several items of value. In light of this, there was the possibility that the motive for the killing was not robbery, as we'd thought before. Lieutenant Jones said that the coroner had called, and he'd said that he'd found over $100 in cash on the body of the victim, also a wristwatch and an expensive ring. In one of the pockets of the coat McNeil was wearing, the crew from the crime lab had found an address book. Jones said he was sending it over to us. The canvas of the area had netted us nothing. None of the people in the immediate vicinity had seen anything out of the ordinary at the time of the killing. We contacted the stats office and asked them to make a run on the method of operation. Until we could come up with a motive for the slaying, there was little we could do to apprehend the killer. Additional men had been sent out from the office to interrogate the other people in the hotel. They reported that they'd found nothing to aid us. 10.47 a.m. Well, we're sure building zeros. We sure are. There's not much to go on. Nothing. I got it. Homicide Friday. Yes, sir. That's right. 
how'd you hear about it? Yeah. Yes, sir, we would. What's that? All right. As soon as we can get there. Yes, sir. Goodbye. Might have a break, maybe. Hmm? Man says he's McNeil's lawyer. What's he got? First step. Huh? The reason McNeil was killed. Frank and I left the city hall and drove over to the address I'd been given on the phone. After a few minutes' wait, we were shown into George Casper's office. We identified ourselves, and he asked us to sit down. Terrible thing to have happen. Yes, sir. I heard about it on the car radio this morning while I was coming to work. You're Mr. McNeil's attorney, are you? Yes. Have been for over ten years. Mm-hmm. On the phone, you said that you knew why he was killed. That's right. I feel a little silly about it now that you're here. It all seems pretty melodramatic. Like, tell us about it? It's McNeil's formula. What, sir? For the past eight years, McNeil's been working on a new type of explosive for commercial use. I see. Supposed to have a lot of advantages. Easy to carry, minimizes the danger of accidental firing. The way he painted it, it'd answer a lot of problems in building. Mm-hmm. He called me the day before yesterday. He said it was finished. They'd completed the final laboratory experiments. Yeah. Went on about how it was going to make a fortune for him. Mm-hmm. Had he talked to anyone about it? I'm not sure, but knowing McNeil, I imagine he did. Why did he say that? Well, these experiments got to be an obsession with him, about the only thing that mattered. A couple of times when we were out someplace, he'd have a few drinks and start talking about the explosive, loud enough for anyone near him to hear it. Mm-hmm. Do you know where he worked? Yes, yeah, small place out in the valley. I can give you the address if you want it. Yes, sir, we'd appreciate that. Have you any idea who might have killed him? No, sir, we're working on it. Mm-hmm. Was there anybody he was close to? You mean socially? That or in business? No, can't think of anyone. There was a girl. He spoke several times of marrying her. Sorry, but I can't tell you any more than that. I don't know her name. All right, fine, Mr. Casper. Does he have any relatives here in town? No, he made a will several months ago. Left everything to one of the industrial schools. Not much. Lab equipment, a few books. Mm -hmm. Anything else you can tell us about? No, I'm afraid not. Most of the time he's pretty quiet. Kept to himself. Once in a while he'd go on a bender. Might last a couple of days. When he was on one of those drinking bouts, he'd get in some kind of trouble. Loud talk, something like that. Nothing serious. All right, sir. If you'll give us that address, we won't take up any more of your time. Yes, of course. I can understand why a fellow was silly about calling you. What's that, sir? Explosives, spies. Sounds like something in a movie. Mm-hmm. I don't imagine there's anything to it, though. As far as I know, McNeil might not even have finished the formula. Might have been just another of his stories. Yeah, that's right. He was always telling whoppers. I guess a psychiatrist would say he was trying to find some way of justifying himself. Is that right? It seemed to be a big thing with him. To find a way of making himself heard about. It kind of looks like he found it. Frank and I went back to the office and met with Captain Lorman. We discussed the possibility of McNeil being killed by somebody who wanted the chemical formula. Because of the potential value of the explosive, federal authorities were notified and they sent a team of men out to aid in the investigation. The next morning, Wednesday, January 12th, we picked up a list of similar crimes from the stats office. In checking out the victims, we got the same description of the thief from each one of them. They all described him as a white male American, 32 years, 165 pounds. In each case, the thief had followed the victims and attacked them as they entered their homes. The last robbery had taken place three weeks before on December 23rd. During the commission of the crime, the victim had been wounded. The bullet had been removed and held at the crime lab as evidence. 8.02 a.m. Frank and I put in a call to Lieutenant Jones. 8.26 a.m. Might be late. Yeah. I get it. Homicide Friday. Yelly. You check him? How about it? Yeah, sure is. 
Yeah. Now all we got to do is to make it do some good. All right. Thank you, Lee. Bye. What's he got? Well, he checked the bullet from the last robbery against the ones that killed McNeil. Yeah. Same gun. Additional local broadcasts and APBs were gotten out carrying the description of the holdup man. Victims were asked to come to the city hall and recheck the mug books in the hope that they might be able to identify him. A check of McNeil's workshop failed to disclose any evidence that he'd been working on an explosive. A week went by without any new developments. Thursday, January 20th, Frank and I got back to the squad room. Well, sure looked for a while like it was going to go. Yeah, I did. I got it. Homicide Friday. Yeah, Jim. Mm-hmm. When? Might be. Right. Right now. Right. Jim Austin, robbery. They just got back from a call out in Westwood. Yeah. Thief fits our description pretty good. Austin thinks it might be the same guy. They get him? No. Something just as good. What do you mean? He dropped a hotel key. Frank and I went over to room 27A and we met with Sergeant Jim Austin. He gave us the details of the robbery. From the way the holdup man operated and the description given by the victim, he was the man we were looking for. And getting away from the scene, he dropped a key to a downtown hotel room. We checked the address in the phone book, and then we left the city hall. It was a small place on South 4th Street. We identified ourselves to the manager and told him why we were there. Yes, it's one of our keys. Can you tell us who has the room? Yes, Ralph Otley. And what's his Otley look like? Oh, he's a nice young fella, blonde. Guess he's about 30 years old. How long has he been here? You mean regular? That's right. About five months. A couple of times before that for a couple of months. He came back, though. Is he in now? No, I haven't seen him since this morning. Left about 7.30. Do you have a job? Well, he never told me nothing about it. What's he do for a living? Well, I guess you'd say he was kind of a promoter. What do you mean? Well, he goes around trying to line things up, figure some way to make a killing. He hit it pretty good on a deal last year, and he's been living on the money since then, I guess. Mm-hmm. What do you want to talk to him about? Police business. Not in trouble, is he? We better talk to him about that. Well, look, if he's done anything wrong, the hotel didn't know a thing about it. He paid his rent. He didn't cause any trouble here. Now, we didn't have any part in it. Well, don't worry about it. What if we could see his room? You mean go through it? We'd like to take a look at it, yeah. Well, I guess it's all right. You being cops, sure, I'll give you the key. Well, you better come with it. Well, I ain't going to tell him nothing. He comes in while you're upstairs. I won't tell him anything. No, sir, that's not the idea. We'd like you to be in the room when we check it. Oh, well, sure. Okay, let's go. Mm-hmm. You really figure that there's something wrong with this, Otley, huh? No, we're not sure. You know, come to think about it, there could be. Why say that? Just because the way he lives, he'd had to make a lot of money to live the way he does. A fellow makes that much. He usually tells everybody how he did it. You know, show how smart he is. Mm-hmm. Well, Otley never says anything, just that he made it, not how. He wouldn't let anybody in on a good thing. Well, maybe he's got a reason. Hmm? Not such a good thing. In the company of the manager, Frank and I checked the suspect's room. In one of the bureau drawers, we found a box of shells for a thirty-eight pistol. There were also several items that had been listed as stolen in previous robberies. We returned to the lobby of the hotel and we waited for Otley to come in. 4.30 p.m., 5, 5.30, 5.45. Joe. Come in. I said... Hello, Mr. Otley. Yeah, I lost my key someplace. You got another one? Yes, sure, I have. Might have left it in the room. I'll check. Sure. Now, let's go. Yeah. Any calls for me today? No, no, sir. No calls. Stand still, Otley. Police officers. Hey, what are you doing? Don't turn around. I'll take it. Yeah. 38 revolver. Hey, what's this all about? I haven't done anything. Get your hands back at me. Hold still. You know you got the wrong guy. You keep telling us, Sam. Take him in for robbery, huh? That's one of them. What do you mean? We're booking you for suspicion of murder. Robbery, that's all you got me for. I'm not going to stand no killing beef. You keep believing me. I will. You're going to tag me with nothing more than a 211. No, let's go. Grab him, Frank. Wait a, Wait a minute. Hold it up, Otley, or I'll shoot. Why did you kill me, cop? Why? 
You're lucky. That's all you know. I'd have been better off a lot better. You should have killed me. All right, come on. We'll take you down to George Street Hospital. I didn't mean to shoot the old man. Is that so? Yeah. He wouldn't give me the money. He kept saying he didn't have any. Yeah. I heard him talking about it, how he was loaded. He could have just given it to me. No trouble if he'd just give me the all money. All right, settle down. You're not hurt bad. Well, he started yelling. I had to shoot him. I had to. It wasn't any other way. You should have killed me. That's why I took off so you'd kill me. I wish you had a... Well, don't worry about it. Huh? Maybe it'll turn out that way. The story you've just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. Ralph Neville Otley was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree and received sentence as prescribed by law. The jury returned a recommendation of mercy, and the suspect was sentenced to life imprisonment at the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. You have just heard Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action, and starring Jack Webb, a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. Dragnet, The Big Death, an episode from the early spring of 1955 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at wamu.org. So far, there's not been a definitive answer to the question of how the author Gertrude Stein and her life partner Alice B. Toklas managed to survive and even prosper in occupied France during World War II. It's clear, though, that these two gay Jewish expatriate Americans were protected by Nazi collaborators— and that Ms. Stein herself played a sympathetic role in the regime of the traitorous puppet dictator, Marshal Philippe Pétain. So, is it ironic that in the last year of her life, Gertrude Stein wrote a kind of rhapsody to the American soldiers who liberated France? The little book, called Brucey and Willie, was published just a few weeks before the author passed away, in July of 1946. Three months later, the prestigious Columbia Workshop adapted it for radio, and we'll hear that broadcast now as one of our salutes to the Memorial Day holiday tomorrow. If, among her many contradictions, Gertrude Stein felt some remorse for her conduct during the war and her ignoring, willfully or otherwise, the fate of her fellow Jews, then we might view Brucey and Willie as an attempt to ingratiate herself with her American compatriots. But by all accounts, including her own, she was genuinely pleased to meet the American soldiers who came to her village and indeed accepted her hospitality. Whatever the case, her book makes for an odd and intriguing radio celebration of the American soldier. From October 12, 1946, it's Gertrude Stein's Brucey and Willie from the CBS Network's Columbia Workshop. 
Presenting Gertrude Stein's famous G.I. characters, Brucie and Willie. Columbia Workshop, radio's foremost laboratory of writing and production techniques, today presents one of the last published works of the famous American writer Gertrude Stein, who lived in France throughout the German occupation and then came to know and esteem the young soldiers of her native land, the slangy, restless, skeptical American G.I. G.I.s and G.I.s and G.I.s, and they made me come all over patriotic. I was always patriotic. I was always, in my way, a Civil War veteran. But in between, there were other things, but now there are no other things. That was the way Gertrude Stein used words, in a literary style all her own, with a rhythm of words sometimes used as much for their sound as their meaning, with a good deal of calculated word repetition for effect. In Bruzy and Willie, you hear G.I.s in France talking as the sound to Gertrude Stein. Bruzy, in particular, is a very gabby young fellow with opinions on nearly all subjects. Willie is his best pal and his best listener. The Columbia Workshop adaptation of Bruzy and Willie is by Gene Clough and is based upon the Random House edition. And now, the rambling dialogues of Bruzy and Willie, directed by Richard Sandville, with a special musical score by Robert W. Stringer. <laughs> You know, Willie, I think we're all funny, pretty funny about this fraternization. Yeah, but now, Chris... just listen. They didn't have to make any anti-fraternization ruling for the German army in France because although the Germans did their best to fraternize, darn few French women would look at them. I kind of wonder, would our women be like French or be like German if the horrible happened in our country was conquered and occupied? Well, I wouldn't want any American woman to be like a French woman. No, you'd want them to be like the Germans, pal around with conquerors. Ah, oh, get out of here, Bruzy. No American would have anything to do with any foreigner. But you admire the Germans who do, Willie. Which do you want American women to be like? I know what I don't want them to be like. I don't want them to be like any foreigner. But all the fathers and mothers of all Americans were foreigners. Oh, shut up, Bruzy. What's that to you? I'll date any German Fraulein who'll date me, and they all will. Sure they will. But all the same, if our country was defeated and occupied, how about it? Well, our country isn't going to be defeated and occupied. That's all there is to that. Yes, but you never can tell in a war. And that's the reason there ain't going to be any more war. Not if I can help it. But if you can't help it, Willie. I'll see to it that I do help it. There ain't going to be any more war. But that's what they said last time, and here we are. Well, did I say we weren't here? We're here, all right. You betcha we're here. And I'm going to fraternize with any German girl who fraternized with me, and they all will. But, Willie, listen. Ain't I listening? Ain't I always listening? You're always talking, and I'm always listening. I want to know why you fellas feel the way you do. Tell me, Joe, you tell me. Now, go away, Brucey. Don't you know? We're disillusioned. Yeah. Sure, sure, Joe. That's it, disillusioned. Hey, hey, fellas, I got to go to the river and wait for a girl. Where is she, Joe? She's gone home to eat, but I said I'd sit on the riverbank and wait, and I'm gonna. Want to come along? There ain't two? No, there ain't but one. Want to come along? What's all three go? That's all right with me. Come on. (laughs) 
The three G.I.s went to the river, and it was dark, but it did not rain. It's a long war, but it will end. And then we'll go home. Where's home? What's your name? Paul is my name, and if it ain't Paul, it's Donald. What do you want with my name? I want to know how old you are and where you come from. Nuts to that. Let's talk about beds. What kind of beds? <laughs> Any kind. The kind you sleep in, the kind you make for yourself, and the kind others make for you. When you wish you were dead, you always wish for a bed. And when they put you in prison, they make you make your own bed. I was just reading about it this evening. Yes, if there is a bed. Yeah, you're right, if there is a bed. There are... Yeah, there are. Oh, what? Eight million unemployed in the next year. And as they spoke, the American soldiers fell asleep by the riverbank. But later, Willie wasn't asleep, and he said... Rosie? I'm here. What you doing? I'm thinking about religion. What religion? Well, Willie, somebody said to me, why don't the G.I.s have the Bible around like the Doughboys did? Why ain't there ever a Bible in a plane? Why should there be? There ain't nothing the matter with the plane. Of course, there could be. Yeah, but if there could, it would be the ground crew's fault. And if there is any flak, you're taught how to dive in so it don't hit you. And if you don't do it right, it does. What's the matter with you, Brucey? Don't you know all that? Oh, yes, I know all that. They do say, though, that the Doughboys in the last war always had Bibles around. That's what they say. The sun was shining and they were all worried. There was nothing to worry about. The sun was shining and they were all worried. Then along came two girls. Look, Red Cross nurses. Willie, you remember what I was talking about? I was talking about a lot of things, about are we isolationists or are we isolated? Listen, he sounds interesting. Tell me, don't you think it's awful that the French have no leaders? Haven't they? We weren't talking to you, we were talking to him. He sounds interesting. You're right, fair sister, he not only sounds it, he is. But how can the French expect to come back if they have no leaders? Why, why, why? How, how, how? How? I don't know. Yes, but he does. You tell us. Yes, I'll tell you. A leader either doesn't lead you, or if he does, he leads you where you don't want to go. Isn't it so, sisters? Isn't it? Where do you want to go? Where do the French want to go? They don't want to go anywhere. They want enough to eat, a place to sleep, and fuel to keep them warm. That's what they want. Leaders never give you that. Leaders just better stay home for a while and lead everybody that way. Yeah, let's go home. I want to go home. We want to go home. Everybody, everybody wants to go home. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. <laughs> you know, I watch all those men, all that army, going around excursioning in autobuses, so fat, so well-dressed, so taken care of, and I say to myself, they want to go home. And I say to myself, where is home? Where you get a bellyful, that's home. Where you got no cares, that's home. Ah, get out, Donald Paul. Home is home. Home is where you come from. That's fine, that's home. You ain't got any imagination, Willie. Nuts to imagination. I want to go home. You will. All too soon. Shut up. If anybody's going to talk, it's Bruzy. Bruzy, you talk. Not today, Willie, not today. I kind of don't understand anything today. I ain't no leader today. I'm kind of scared of being a leader today. Ah, you're no leader, Bruzy. You just talk. What do leaders do? They talk, too. But they talk different. Tell me, do you all talk like this every day? Mm, not every day. Mostly every day. I think we will come again. The war is over and they have lots of time on their hands. So they talk, so they talk, so they talk. 
Work. You know, I think American men work funny. They write to me from home. They've worked so hard, they never want to work that hard again. Perhaps they won't have the chance. What do you mean, Donald Paul? Well, how about it? Any work to go back to, Joe? Just as much as you. Not so. I'm the only one of the whole bunch of you that don't have to look for work. Why, are you so rich? Too rich to work. Well, anyway, I often think we soldiers complain, and we complain about what the officers have, but we don't complain how we have everything civilians don't have. What do you mean, Brucey? Well, don't we have food and clothes and shoes all the time? They take us everywhere and eats and free everything and no worries. I could almost cry when I think we all got to go back and be civilians and scratch and worry and then those bills, pay everything on the installment plan and coming in and coming in. I could just bust out crying. Well, if we got to cry, let's go find some beer to cry into. Come along. late afternoon and the streets were narrow and three Negro soldiers came along and there was a very little girl and her mother. One of the Negroes fell on his knee like a cavalier before the little girl and took her hand. The mother went on and then stood slightly shy looking at her little girl. And the little girl, a little shy, shook the hand of the kneeling soldier. He said a word in French. She answered him. She was a very little girl, only five years old. The other two had gone on. He rose from his knee and he went on. The little girl went along with her mother. It's funny the way a colored guy always finds some little colored children to talk to. He said he wanted the government to take over everything. I hope you answered him back that the first thing they ought to take over is this blasted army. If they manage other things the way they manage this, then they better had keep their hands off. That's all I got to say. Keep their hands off. You couldn't be righter. Ain't the government back of this army? Ain't this the most wasteful, bad-managed piece of machinery? Ain't we all no good? All right. I tell you, boys, there ain't any answer. And anybody says there is. You, Bruzy, and that lousy Donald Paul, there ain't going to be any answer. There never has been an answer. That's the answer. There ain't going to be any answer. I don't see why everybody's so scared. Nothing to be scared about. My brother lived through depression. He always had a job. What you scared about? Bruzy, tell him. You always listen to Bruzy. Sure I listen to Bruzy. You know what he says is true, and you just don't have to listen, and that's just fine. Hey, tell me something. Anybody tell me something. If it's true, and it is... And now we've got less iron ore left than Canada. Why are we going home to jobs to use up what iron ore we do have, making gadgets? Now, tell me why we want to rush home to work at a job so our children won't have no iron ore and be just like those European people. That is what you call a high standard of living. Uh, <laughs> how many more installment plans does that mean? Ain't there any other kind of work to do than make those gadgets? Ain't there? Not that any he American wants to do. We want to work making gadgets, and that's what we'll do. We'll stand in line till we get a job making gadgets. And somebody else will stand in line till he gets a job to sell them on the installment plan. And then we'll all be dead and why worry? I do worry, though, Willie. You see, industrialism, well, England began it. They made machines. And they turned out, well, not like we do, but a whale of a lot of goods. But they had all their colonies to dump them on and their possessions. 
You know about how the sun never sets on them. Never shines in them. That's all I know. <laughs> well, we horned in after our Civil War. We went industrial, and we had more everything than they had, and we got richer and they got poorer. And their markets, that is, the people in their empire, slowed down in buying. And they used up their raw material, and then they tried to get new places to sell to, like Egypt and Africa. Foreigners. You just wait. And there we were, getting richer and richer. And why? Because we had our outside market right at home. We had immigration. Thousands and millions coming in every year into our country. Foreigners? But as soon as they made some money... Then they were Americans. And the more they came, the more they made. Well, then you know what happened. After the last war, we cut off immigration. We hoped to sell enough to foreign countries, but foreign countries didn't want to buy. And we had the Depression. We sure did have the Depression. And then we had to fight. And yes, we won, but we used up an awful lot of raw material. And now we've got to go home and make stuff to use up some more and have gadgets that nobody but our little population wants to buy. Oh, dear, it does just sound too awful. The Red Cross sisters again. Ain't we popular? My father used to say it would happen. He was an Englishman, and he said it would happen. Why bring him into it? Well, he did say it. He said when they cut off immigration, little girl, you'll see right here in this big, rich, prosperous country, you'll see a real depression. Not just busted booms, but a big depression. But, Brucey, what do you mean? What can any of us do but go home, get a job if we can, make the gadgets you say nobody has money to buy, and, and buy them ourselves on the installment plan, and borrow money from the finance company to sort of worry along? What can we do? You want us to starve? That's just what the English are saying. Sister, will you forget the English? <laughs> How can I when we're doing just like them? Listen, I heard some men talking. Frenchmen this time? No, they weren't French. And they said, why do Americans make such a fuss and everyone should be grateful to them? Don't they know they didn't come over to Europe to fight till they were attacked at Pearl Harbor? And then they came over to protect the rear of their country. It's a fact. And then, well, they crossed the channel all right. But they were fighting a pretty broken German army. Had all its best troops killed in Russia. And they thought France was fine when they had the French resistance to help them. But when they got to Germany with no guerrillas to help, it didn't go so well. Then the Germans almost broke through with a used-up army. Janet, did you sit there and listen to those men say things like that about your country? It was their country, too. They were Americans. You mean to say you sat there and listened to Americans talk like that about America? About the American army? I didn't sit, Pauline. I stood. It isn't true, Janet. It isn't. <laughs> Nothing's true that makes the American army sound like that. I'm going home. You'll find out how wrong you are. Don't worry, sister. I met two soldiers just yesterday who never have and never can worry. And why can't they? Why don't they? Well, because they're too young. They're so young, they just smile. Don't you worry, sister. There are lots of them too young to worry. They just smile. There, the army of occupation, Willie and Bruzy and Joe and Donald Paul and the others. When they was fighting, they weren't lonely because there was always danger with them. Now they're lonesome and bored, and they keep talking, always talking, American talk, wondering, hard-boiled, tired talk. Well, Bruzy, now I've talked. You talk and tell us how to save ourselves from death and measles. Death ain't so bad, but measles. And have you ever had measles? Yeah. You shut up tight, Joe. Everybody's had measles. Let Bruzy begin. Well, I'm going to begin because I have a lot to say. Let's begin with the Civil War. Well, it was a mistake. I come from Georgia. Mistake is the word. The South should never have fought. 
She should have let her slaves be bought off. Slavery's wrong, whatever you say. Sure, nobody in the South talks about that anymore. But how about states' rights? That's what they fought for. That's just it, Donald. Paulie didn't. If they wanted states' rights, the way to have done was to let their slaves be compensated for. Then they would have been so strong politically, they would have beaten out on states' rights. I tell you, the Civil War was a mistake, and we're all suffering for it. How come? How are you suffering? Because the South, it would have acted like a break on the North. Kind of a dead weight, you mean? No, not necessarily dead. A counterweight to keep us from going ahead so fast. All right, we were fighting so people wouldn't have to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Now, listen. You listen to me. I got something real to say. Okay, Donald Paul. The trouble with us all, all Americans, we think we're up to date, but we're old-fashioned. What we think about war, what we think about Germans, we think about them just like the last lot did 25 years ago. Oh, no, Yes, we, we do. We like them, the Heinies, because they have electric lights and fixings. If there's anything old-fashioned, it's just that. We think war is wine, women, and song, and heroes. We're just old-fashioned, as old-fashioned as a pinup girl. What's the matter with a pinup girl? Nothing's the matter with a pinup girl if you just know it's old-fashioned. <laughs> It was coming on winter. It always is coming on winter when summer is over. And it was coming on winter. And it comes on dark when it comes on winter. Okay, Bruiser, you can talk. You can afford to talk. Fellas like you don't need a job. You live, just live. Everybody's got to see to it you live. But fellas like us, well, we got to have jobs. Talk all you like, but when we get home and don't wear this brown, we got to have a job, job, job. Well, some have to have jobs. Some have got to be employed and be employees, but not so many, Willie. That's what I want to say. Industrialism makes employees stop thinking, stop feeling, makes them all feel alike. You make industrialism sound like chewing gum. You chew and you chew, but it don't feed you. It's got a kind of taste, but that's all there is to it. Have I got it right, kind of? The thing to do is to use our common sense. Here come the sisters. You might just as well wait till they get here. Oh, they're crying out loud. Before you talk anymore, I want to know if there's going to be an answer. Because if there isn't, I think I'll go back. Is there going to be any answer, Bruzy? The sister wants to know. She's very polite, but she certainly wants to know. If you're right, and it does kind of seem so, Bruzy, the more we work, the poorer our country gets, and the more depressions we have. What's the answer, Bruzy? You got an answer? Give it to us. You mind if I begin again from the beginning? We can't help ourselves if we do mind. And we do. Oh, be quiet, sister. You make him kind of nervous. Let him talk. Let him tell us how to be useful but poor. No, how to be hopeful, though, poor. Oh, well, that's something. But if we hadn't been industrial the way we were, how would we have won this war? Did we win? Yes, we did win this war. Well, then, with that behind us, we can settle down to be poor but honest. Not so much on the honest. Ever hear of stealing? Stealing what? Go anywhere in the occupied country, and what does everybody do? They steal. Sure they do. And then they gamble it away and they go home poor but honest. Poor it is, I know. Listen, Willie, you kind of think I go over it all too much. You're like anybody with a story. You want the middle to go faster. But that's it, Willie. That's it. It's going too fast. You've got to slow it down. Sure, you want the end, but there isn't any end. You've got to go slower. This is what has to happen. When you get back, you have to pioneer. And pioneering is slow work. Pioneer what? Just pioneer. I want to try and get a job over here. You want to stay in this lousy Europe? Oh, uh, yes, in a way. You see, my mind's confused, so I want to stay and try and... I suppose you've been listening to Bruzy. No, I haven't. Who's Bruzy? That's Bruzy. Well, how did you get your mind so confused if you didn't listen to Bruzy? Who are you, anyway? I'm Henry. Hey, Bruzy, new recruit for you to confuse more. 
Name's Henry. Don't you see? We're just a lot of employees obeying a boss with no mind of our own. And if it goes on, where's America? He's right. Listen, I don't want to see us get more employee-minded. Employed by the big factory owners. Employed by the strikers. Employed by the government. Employed by the labor unions. Well, who do you want should employ you? Who do you want should give you a job? I don't want a job. I want a pioneer. Ah, you make me tired. You sound like Bruzy. Bruzy, explain to this guy what pioneering is. I don't know yet. I'm thinking. Well, I think... You let Bruzy do the thinking. That's the way we are in this outfit. That just shows how employee you are, Willie. Ah, get out of here. Some of the real pioneer American these days were done by Negroes. They find new places, new home, new lives. And they more and more own something. Whatever was it we were talking about? What do you think? Women and chickens and yellow butterflies and potatoes. Of course, I'm not talking. I only listen, and it never listens good. But I want to know. You'll know. Any moment of the day or night, they talk, and they always talk about it. About what? About what it's about, about what to do about it. Just listen, sister. You know what they're all talking about at home? They're talking about free trade. I know. My father... The British again. Wouldn't it be beautiful if everybody just stopped working? <laughs> Taking a walk, taking a walk, and talking, talking. You know, they used to say, be your age. I kind of wonder sometimes, are we that age? Everybody says we're sad. How old do you have to be to be sad? How young can you be to be lonesome? You sure are talking funny. Everybody is. Maybe it's because we're going to be redeployed. Isn't that a nice word? Redeployed. They make it a word like that because they won't be responsible if we have a job or not. Funny, very funny. And sometimes nobody knows how funny it is. If you don't like the word rede redeployment, if it kind of makes you nervous, how about reconversion? That is only a word. Reconversion turns out to be only a word. It's lousy. So what can we do about it? Well, what have we got that nobody else has got? The atomic bomb. Not so got. Everybody says not so got. All right, then, not the atomic bomb. What is it we got, then? We like to pioneer. There ain't no wilderness no more. Shut up, everybody. Here comes that cute Pauline and a girlfriend. Hey, go on, Bruzy. How do you pioneer without a wilderness? There's lots of wilderness out where I live. Around where I live, it's all wilderness. But can you pioneer in that wilderness of yours? Why not? Yes, they can if they've any guts. They don't expect to be it to be easy. All right, sister, all right. I say if you all are ready to break down what's been built up, that's pioneering. Here in Europe, they broke down what they built, and now they're all just as busy as anything pioneering. And they're kind of happy doing it. Not so happy by their looks. Sister, you're funny. What do you want? Do you want us to drop our atomic bombs on ourselves? Is that what you want so we can go out and pioneer? Well, yes, kind of. I get you. Let's begin again. We're all getting funny. Not so funny at that. Now the boys are talking about the girls. This is very G.I., but Ruby is a thinker. She was cute, that Pauline, about wilderness and pioneering. Didn't you think she was cute, Ruby? Be serious, Willie. All right, but you never say what to do. Thinking is all you do, Bruzy, but living is what we all got to do. How's everybody going to live? I say she was cute. Well, if I'm right, they mostly aren't going to live. 
Sure, you're right, Bruising. But look at everybody over here. By rights, they ought all to be dead. All of them, over and over again, dead. And they ain't, Bruising. Far from it. They seem, from the looks of them, to be more living than ever before. Now, that's the trouble with all the thinking. Some get rich and some get poor, but all the same, they go on living. No matter what does happen, everybody somehow goes on living. You see, Bruzy, you gotta hold out a little hope. The hope is that our generation is more solid, more scared, more articulate than the last one. You sure are crazy. You sure are crazy. They all think they're the only thing there is. You wait a minute. Hey, you guys! Stop talking about how much you pay for cognac anywhere you are and how much you gotta pay more than anybody else and how much cognac you had yesterday. Just come over and tell this guy, Bruzy, what you think foreigners are and what you think Americans are. Come on over. Americans? Yeah, we Americans, we ride wide and handsome, and everybody admires us. Oh, do they? Yes, they do. Why wouldn't they? And we get everything they want? Do they want it? Sure they do. They see us riding so wide and handsome. Wide, all right, but not so handsome. Over here, they live with their chickens and all. They're just so poor. But they have chickens to live with. But that ain't progress. What is? And do you think it's right they charge me twice as much for cognac as they charge a Frenchman? Your dollar means more. I'm just a poor American soldier. And it isn't right I should pay more. Anyway, I was just sitting there... Yes, you were just sitting there with your lonesome dollar. What do you mean? I may be poor, but I got more than one dollar. Not that. What I mean is the United States dollar is a very lonesome dollar. It's riding wide and handsome, but it's riding all alone. Nobody can use it. Maybe pretty soon we can't use it. What do you mean? I mean that our dollar is a lonesome dollar. And if you get kind of lonesome, you get to be no good. And if you get to be no good, you go kind of bad. And if you go kind of bad, you don't get it all. And where are you? Nowhere, are you? I tell you, our fine dollar is just lonesome. Shut up, Donald Paul. The worst of everything is it always sounds true. Joe, we got him. Sure, we got him. We are the boys who are redeployed in a little boat on a little shore. <laughs> it makes me feel funny. Kind of funny. Nothing but jobs. Well, Bruzy, do we like it? Yes, we do like it. But go slow. Here we are. We heard you boys are moving out. Where's Pauline? She stopped to pick you a flower. God bless her for that sweet thought. Tell me, won't you miss talking when you get home? You do know, don't you, that nobody talks like you boys talk. Not back home. Yeah, we know. Except Bruzy, he'll talk. Bruzy will talk, but we won't be there to listen. We kind of will remember that he's talking somewhere, but we won't be there to listen. There won't be anybody talking where we'll be. But perhaps they will talk now. Perhaps they will over there. Not those on the job, they won't. Not those on the job. G.I.s and G.I.s, and they've made me come all over patriotic. I was always patriotic. I was always, in my way, a Civil War veteran. But in between, there were other things. But now, there are no other things. And I am sure that this particular moment in our history is more important than anything since the Civil War. We are there where we have to fight a spiritual pioneer fight. You just have to find a new way. You have to find out how you can go ahead without running away with yourselves. You have to learn to produce without exhausting your country's wealth. You have to learn to be individual 
And you have to get courage enough to know what you feel and not just all be yes or no men. But you have to really learn to express complication. Go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Remember the depression. Don't be afraid to look it in the face and find out the reason why. If you don't find out the reason why, you'll go poor. And how I would hate to have my native land go poor. Find out the reason why. Look facts in the face. Not just what they all say, the leaders, but every one of you. So that a government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the face of the earth. It won't. Somebody else will do it if we lie down on the job. But of all things, don't stop. Find out the reason why of the depression. Find it out, each and every one of you, and then look facts in the face. We are Americans. have eavesdropped upon the rambling dialogues of Bruzy and Willie by Gertrude Stein, as adapted for the Columbia Workshop by Gene Clough, and based upon the Random House edition. The special musical score was by Robert W. Stringer, and the workshop director was Richard Sanville. Every week, the workshop presents something different with special emphasis upon the unusual and the experimental. Next week and the week following, the workshop will present a two-part version of the immortal American classic of the sea, Moby Dick, by Herman Melville, as adapted for radio by Ernest Kinoy. Howard G. Barnes will direct Moby Dick for the Columbia Workshop. Saturday night is good listening with CBS. Listen now over most of these same stations for the famous correspondent Larry Lasseur and the news. He'll be with you in just a moment. Don Baker speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From Columbus Day in 1946, the Columbia Workshop production of Gertrude Stein's Brucey and Willie, part of our Memorial Day tribute here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. We set aside tomorrow as a day to honor the brave men and women who have served our country in the military, especially those who made the ultimate sacrifice. But what if there were years, decades, even several centuries, without any wars at all? Would people still honor the courage and sacrifice of soldiers? Would there still be any soldiers? And would they still exhibit that same bravery? Well, these are exactly the kinds of questions that science fiction seeks to answer. And there's an X-1 episode that tackles them. It's called Soldier Boy, and it comes from October 17, 1956, NBC, and X-1. Countdown for blastoff. X-5, 4, 3, 2... X minus one, fire.
From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents... X minus one... Tonight's story, Soldier Boy by Michael Scherer. There is a Scandinavian legend. In the Northland deep, in a great cave by an ever-burning fire, the warrior sleeps. For this is the resting time, the time of peace. And so shall it be for a thousand years. And yet we shall summon him again, my children, when we are sore in need. And out of the north he will come, and again and again, each time we call, out of the dark and the cold, with the fire in his hand, he will come. I was off duty when the call came to report... I was off duty and out of uniform. As a matter of fact, I was in a bar, drunk. Basio had just spilled a beer over me. I cussed him out, and when I looked up, there was a shore patrol standing over me. Captain Dillon? Well, where did they find you, Buster? Did you flunk out of high school or get into a fight with your father and run away from home? Captain Dillon, I have a message for you. Well, 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 look, Basio, this is humanity's finest... He has joined the service to protect home and hearth against the savage aliens. Touching, Dylan. Touching. Are you Lieutenant Basio? I have a message for you, too. Have a drink. Uh, no, thank you, sir. Well, listen to that, sir, Basio. This kid has got morale. It's a fact, Dylan. He's crawling with it. Sure, I haven't heard morale like that since the Second Martian Revolt in 23. Boy, don't you know that the armed service is a scrap heap? Do not use the best iron to make nails or the best men to make soldiers. Old Chinese proverb. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. Ancient folk song. Please, Captain, Lieutenant, I'm just doing what they told me to. I'm supposed to tell you to report to division headquarters. Uh Uh-huh. And they told you to try every bar on the strip and you'd be sure to run into us, huh? Yes, sir. Those were Colonel Swift's orders. A good commander. He knows the whereabouts of his troops. All right, Basio, drink up. Let's go. Duty called. The garrison town was wide open. The street was lined with saloons, gambling houses, and whatever. They cleaned up this sort of thing on Earth and every colony in the solar system and beyond, but they let them stay near the army bases, mostly because they knew there'd been 500 years of peace, and the men that sifted down into the army were not quite the best adjusted of human beings. The drinkers, the gamblers, the men who were destructive in a hundred different quietly degrading ways wore the uniform of the defense command. The uniform that was usually creased and just a little dirty. I know because I'm a veteran of 20 years of it. Not a veteran of any wars nor any fighting except in some saloon on payday, but a survivor of garrison life of chasing smugglers and rally catching them. 
The colonel was fat and sweaty, and as a gesture to military discipline, he chased a frowsy blonde out of the office before he spoke to us. Sit down, Dylan. Have you ever heard of Lupus Five? No. It's out on the rim on a 360 vertical sector. They were wiped out a year ago. Disease? Aliens. A mail ship found it. By the time they called the army in, almost six months had gone by. There were 70 colonists. 31 were dead. The rest were missing. All the technical equipment, all radios, guns, machines, even books were gone. The rest of the place was burned over. Only one of the men found something in the ash. As you know, every colony is equipped with a detonator in a main building. And a cobalt bomb buried right in the middle because it's a lot more important to blow a whole village than let some hostile alien learn vital technical facts about human technology and body chemistry. Why didn't the bomb blow at Lupus 5? Because the wire was cut. At the heart of the camp, under 12 inches of earth, somebody dug it up and cut it. Who? I don't know. Dylan, we're pulling back, evacuating the rim colonies. There's nothing else to do. No defense possible? After 500 years of peace? Look at you, Dylan. Look at me. And the rest of the army is about the same. We're pulling out. Uh, They're not going to like that out at the rim colonies. If they don't like it, they can wait and be burned by the aliens. We can't protect them. You'll report to the 38th sector. You'll have ten planets on your route to warn and evacuate. Try and stay sober. Yeah, I'll try. That's all. Get out of here. And uh, send Kitty back in uh, on your way out. We cleaned up three planets, delivered the dispatches from headquarters, and tried to find out if they had anything worth drinking in the colonies. Usually they didn't. And we were stuck with something that Basio made out of high-thrust fuel with a little lemon juice and oil of wintergreen for flavoring. We headed out for number four. Hey, uh, Dylan. Ah. You want another belt? No, not now. I got to feed orbits into this fool computer. Light up. Come on. There she goes. You know, it's funny. What? Life. You're a 90-proof philosopher, Basio. Nah. Look, we come down on a planet. Nobody talks to us. We can stand out in the landing field in snow or sand or whatever they got on that miserable planet. Nobody wants us. Well, look at you. Can you blame them? No, no, no. You don't get it. What are we here for? To save them. They shove a firecracker under their tails and get them out while there's still time. What do they call us? Soldier boy. Drunken bum. Now, what do they do that for? Uh, Three guesses. Yeah, like on that last one. They almost mobbed us. Every time we walked out in the street, they looked at us as if these uniforms are some kind of a... An insult. Well, look up your history, Basio. There's been too much misery tied up with soldier suits of some kind. It's... Practically a racial memory. Ah, baloney. They got no call to treat us like we were criminals. They would have shot me down if you hadn't taken off so quick. Yeah, look, look, Basio. If somebody comes and tells you you got to get off the planet that's been home for 20 years and then wrecks their best restaurant in a brawl, what do you expect? A medal? Ah, I guess you're right. Hey, <laughs> that was some scrap. Yeah. I didn't like the way that stuck-up-a-head-waiter called me soldier boy. I'll do it all over again. I know you would. On the next planet, do your drinking on the ship. It's safer all around. Well, I still got no right to be so stuck up. After all, somebody's got to be in the army. Yeah, I guess so. 
Well, that's the last orbit. Uh, pass me the bottle. The fourth planet was Norge 1, a big green world about 20% cooler than Earth temperate. They'd heard about the evacuation, and when we sent the scout down on the landing field, there was a crowd gathered. When I opened the hatch, I could smell a wet, heavy breeze that meant snow. It was below freezing, and Army-issue cold-weather gear wasn't worth much. I waited out at the edge of the field for 15 minutes, waiting for somebody to take notice of a ship of the United Earth Defense Command. I just stood there in the cold wind with a pint to keep me warm. Finally, somebody came out to talk to me. What do you want? I'm Captain Dillon. I have a message from fleet headquarters. Are you in charge here? Nobody's in charge here. If you want a spokesman, I guess I'll do. What is it? Well, I uh, got a dispatch for you from headquarters. I'll look at it later. <coughs> is it always this cold? This time of year. He's a brass monkey. Drink? No, thank you. Mind if I do? No, you have to. <coughs> I don't suppose you've got any decent liquor on this planet. No, we don't have any. Uh, yeah, I forgot. All right, let's get going. We haven't got much time. They had a meeting at the main warehouse. Russell read the dispatch in the order for evacuation. It took them a long time to understand. They took it pretty well, but then these were pioneers. Pioneers. Before you settle a planet, you boil it and bake it and purge it of possible diseases. Then you step down gingerly and inflate your plastic houses which harden and then become warm and impregnable. You send your machines out to plant and harvest and set up automatic factories to transmute dirt into coffee. And without having lifted a finger, you brave the wilderness, hewed a home out of living rock, and you're a pioneer. Of course, they were angry, and as usual, they take it out on me. Now, look here, soldier. This is our planet. This is our home. We demand some protection from the fleet. We've been paying taxes for all of you all these years, and it's about time you aren't your keep. Maybe, Mr. Russell, maybe. But there is no fleet. Now, there are a few hundred half-shot old tubs that were obsolete before you were born, and there are four or five new jobs for the brass and the government, but that's all the fleet there is. Now, look, it's 10.30 now, and those aliens might be coming in at any time, for all we know, so we'd better get going. Lieutenant Fascio has gone on to the sister colony at Pyramid 2 of this system. He'll return to pick me up by nightfall. And I've been instructed to have you gone by then. I wanted to remind them that nobody wanted the army, that the fleet had grown smaller and smaller, but there wasn't any point to it now. I realized long ago that they were right in a way... I was a big, fat anachronism, a fossil, a hangover from the Dark Ages. Only, unfortunately, we'd run right into a new Dark Ages that came from somewhere out in the stars and picked off colonies and burned them to a cinder. Well, when they finally left the meeting, I went out to check the bomb. The detonator was in the radio shack. It was a long metal bar with a lock on it. I followed the conduit down the wall till it entered the ground. Then I started to chop at the frozen earth to follow the wire. Uh, Captain Dillon. 
Yeah. How many people can your ship take? Well, she sleeps two. Won't take off with more than ten. Why? We're overloaded. There are 60 of us, and our ship won't take over 40. We came out in groups, so we never thought... You sure? She's only a little ship. She's all we could afford. Well, it looks as if somebody's going to find out firsthand what those aliens look like. It's not very funny. All right, all right. Maybe the colony on two has room. I'll call Basio and ask. Aren't there any fleet ships within radio distance? Oh, Look, the fleet is spread out kind of thin nowadays. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. What's that? That's your wire from the detonator to the bomb. Somebody dug it up, cut it, and then buried it again and packed it down again real nice. Fool. Who? Well, one of us, of course. I know nobody ever liked sitting on a live bomb like this, but I never You mean it. one of your people? Isn't that obvious? Why? Well, they probably thought it was too dangerous, like most government rules. Maybe one of the kids. No, no, no. There was a bomb wire cut on Lupus 5 just before the alien attack. Maybe an animal? No, no animal did that. Some coincidence, huh? The wire at Lupus 5 was cut just about before an alien attack. Now, this one was cut, too. Newly cut. So something knew enough about this camp to know that a bomb was buried here and also to know why it was. Something didn't want the camp destroyed, so it came into the middle, traced the wire, dug it up, and cut it, and then walked right out again. What'll we do? Pass out your guns. Try not to scare them. I'll be with you as soon as I splice this wire. I spliced the wire and went back into the radio shack and pulled out my pistol. I checked it and primed it and tried to remember the last time I'd fired it. The snow began falling near noon. By one o'clock, the visibility was down to zero. I tried to contact Basio to tell him to hurry. He didn't answer. I figured he was probably drunk or sleeping it off. I suppose I should have been out organizing some kind of defense, inspiring everybody with grim, lantern-jawed courage. But as a matter of fact, my jaw is somewhat slack, and I'm not strong on courage. So I took a belt from the bottle and considered things. The tension was beginning to get me. After 20 years of hanging around and playing like the town drunk, a man can't be expected to rush out and plug the breach just like that. You have to work up to these things gradually. I suppose there was something to me originally, but I lost it. I lost it in 20 years of idiotic garrison spit and polish in saloons and the icy looks and choice words that civilians save for peacetime soldiers. I had half the bottle killed when Russell came back to see me. Captain, I just can't make any sense of this. Who cut that wire? Well, as far as I can figure, an alien cut it. No, there haven't been any aliens or any peculiar animals near this camp. We've got planet-wide radar, and there have been no unidentified ships since the first landing a year ago. One of us must have done it. It's the only possible explanation. You mean a traitor? Or a dupe. Maybe the aliens can exert some kind of telepathic control. Uh-uh. I can't see it. If they're able to control one, why not all and save half the bother? Now, look, is there any animal that ever comes near here that's as large as a dog? Well, there's a viggle. It's like a monkey with four legs. We shoot them now and then when they get into the crops. We're going to post sentries. Do you want to place them? Well, you know this site better than I do. Post them in a ring within calling distance, huh? Dylan, what are they like? The aliens... Do you know? No, I don't think anybody does. We don't know what they look like, what they think like, or where they come from. Do you think they've landed yet? Don't know. With this snow coming down, they could be out there in the woods right now, and we'd never know. 
Planet Director 7396, recording progress report on attack day. Physical situation excellent. Headquarters bunker 10 feet underground. Electrical heating apparatus running smoothly. View screens operating. Human colonists' activity not according to pattern. Eight humans have taken up watch positions on the perimeter of the colony. Original plan was for attack at night. The presence of Earth vessel dictates change in plans. The humans move quickly. They might be gone by nightfall. It will be necessary to disable their ship, proceeding on this alternate plan. At noon, Russell reported that Planet Two didn't answer his call. Basio might be drunk, but the colony on Two wouldn't be. If there was no answer, it was because they were dead. The people were quiet and frightened. Some of the women were beginning to cry. They brought me coffee now. It had begun to dawn on the women that they might be leaving without their husbands or sons. They had their ships stripped down and they were loading. The ones that were going stood outside and stripped off their clothes. Cold weather gear of 40 people weighed enough to get a few more on board. In the end, the ship took 46 people. When they were all loaded and they cleared the landing field and the hatches closed. You could hear the generators surge for a lift. But then there was a sharp burning smell and she never got off the ground. Dylan. Over here under the tree. What happened? The lining's burned out. She's being repaired. How long will it take to fix? Four or five hours. It'll be dark by then. It seems like they want to wait till the dark. Probably aren't many of them. Might mean that or maybe they see better at night or maybe they move slow. You got any idea how they got to the ship? No. You know, I've been in the Army 20 years. This is the first time I was ever in a fight. I never shot at anybody. I always figured I'd be afraid. But there doesn't seem to be any sense in being afraid. There's nothing to do but wait until night comes. I sat there thinking of Basio. He was dead... There wasn't much doubt of that. Probably died dead drunk and not giving a solitary hoot. I stared out into the snow and thought the same thought over and over. Basio is dead. Basio is dead. In all this dog-eared, apron universe, he was about the only friend I had, and so naturally he was dead. Dead because he tried to come out here to help these people. People who cursed him and called him a drunk, which he was, and a brawler, which he was when somebody crossed him. But he was the one who came to help. And in short time, I'd be staying behind so that some colonist could jam himself aboard my ship and lift out to safety. And I'd die to save somebody I didn't even know. Somebody who 24 hours before would be ashamed to be found in my company. They'd come to an army for help too late. An army like me, sodden and not knowing whether they can fight or not. Dylan! What? Over there, at the edge of the woods. Something moving. You can see it through the snow. Look out. How far do you make it to that tree? About 50 yards. 50 yards. There it is, you see, by the bush. 50 yards, no wind, half charge. I have a feeling I'm forgetting something. Well, here it goes. You got it! Get down. Maybe more of them. Wait and see. I saw it clear when it jumped. It was one of those monkeys. Maybe. We'll see. I waited ten minutes and then I ran over. Whatever it was was gone, almost all of it. My bolt had taken a paw and taken it clean off. 
I picked it up, but there was no blood. The skin was real and furry, all right, but the bone was steel and the muscles were springs. It wasn't any four-legged monkey. It was a robot. Planet Director 7396 recording progress report on attack day. Due to component tube failure, small robot unit out of control. Wandered toward settlement. Took calculated risk with poor seeing due to snow that humans would overlook it and still think of it as an animal. Even firing with ports open. But a part of the robot is missing and the humans have found it. There will be no chance to disable the smaller ship now. In order to carry out total destruction, the settlement will have to be detonated. The settlement will have to be bombed from previously planted locations. I will have to leave control bunker for a more distant position as soon as protective armor is put on. I will proceed to carry out this plan. I realize this is not the ideal operation. It is more disciplined to capture humans and their equipment undamaged, but total destruction is necessary. For further operations, recommend duplication of essential controls on robots. The procedure of planting them on worlds before colonization by humans in the shape of local animals demands perfect operation when attack day arrives, or the resident director planted at the same time on each world will be unable to carry through attack plans. Now leaving bunker. That's how they got the ship, all right. Probably slipped a Viggle through the aft port and left it in there to foul the lining. wonder what else they've got. Probably all kinds of things. Must have been some kind of lizard that went under and cut the wire. A spicer lizard. They can burrow underground. And we've got a bat that could do aerial reconnaissance for them. They know everything about you, and we don't know anything about them. They're probably sitting out there right now, swarming behind those trees, waiting for it to get nice and dark. All right, you better get back to the others and tell them I'll stay here. Why? Because we only need one. If we could just get one back to a lab, we'd have some clue to what they are. We can't just cut and run. We've got to make a stand. I didn't think the army made stands. I thought they just pulled out. Yeah, I suppose so. An army does what it has to, and ours is weak and filled with men like me. But even so, there comes a time when you have to make a stand. I stayed out there in the snow. I wasn't thinking very calmly. It was too cold. But it was probably just as well. I put in about ten minutes being afraid of whatever it was that was behind those trees. What I needed was luck. Just good, plain old luck. I didn't know where they were or how many there were or what kind, so I needed luck. I started to inch forward in the snow. There was nothing but quiet in the trees... I got past the first trunk. My elbow hit a rock and it hurt. My feet were cold. And then I heard a noise. The thing was moving down the left side of a gorge up ahead. I got up on my knees. I blew on my fingers. and threw the charge level on my pistol over to full. It was a great black lump on a platform. The platform had legs and was plodding up a path that came right past me. It hadn't seen me yet, but it would. There were five of those little monkeys skipping on before it, acting as eyes. Then one of them spotted me and started running. My first shot took the monkey in the head, and then I aimed for the lump on the platform. 
They got one blast off before I hit anything vital. It burned across my shoulder, my shirt chart. Felt as if I'd been hit in the arm with an axe. Nothing else moved. The monkeys were stiff like statues and the platforms on its side. Through a hole in the black lump, something gray and soft was oozing out. I looked around and saw the robots frozen, and I realized I'd got them. I'd hit the guide, the alien who was directing the robots. I kicked at it with my foot. It was too big and heavy to carry. I'd have to send someone back for it. But I wanted to take something, so I grabbed one of the monkeys by his stiff, jutting arm and began to drag it back to the village. We put the alien in a freeze tank and shipped it back to Earth. They learned a lot in the lab, but out there in the colony, we learned a lot more. We learned that man wasn't born to live out his days at home by the fire. In the wee black corner of space which man had taken for his own, other men were learning. And the snow fell and the planets whirled, and when it was spring, where I had fought, men were already leaping back out to the stars. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features The Native Problem by Robert Sheckley, in which a misfit discovers that there is not plenty of room in space for his kind, that in fact there is less room in space for him than anywhere else. Galaxy Magazine, on your newsstand today. Tonight by transcription, X-1 has brought you Soldier Boy. A story from the pages of Galaxy written by Michael Scherer and adapted for radio by Ernest Canoy. Featured in the cast were Larry Haynes as Dylan, Ralph Bell as Basio, Alan Hewitt as Russell, Bob Hastings as the shore patrolman, Wendell Holmes as the colonel, and Kermit Murdoch as the alien. Your narrator was Floyd Mack. This is Fred Collins speaking. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. X-1 and Soldier Boy, adapted by Ernest Kinoy from a story by Michael Shara in the fall of 1956. Less than 20 years later, Mr. Shara would win the Pulitzer Prize for his novel The Killer Angels, which provided the basis for the 1993 movie Gettysburg. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. We want to give another salute to the memorial holiday that begins just a couple of hours from now. It comes from that very long-running religious series, The Eternal Light. Following World War II, there were a number of novels and dramas that dealt with anti-Semitism. Among them, the playwright Arthur Miller's book, later a movie, Focus, and Laura Z. Hobson's novel, Gentleman's Agreement that became a Best Picture Oscar-winning film starring Gregory Peck. Just as later works of fiction that tackled racism, like To Kill a Mockingbird and In the Heat of the Night, these earlier books were out to change people's minds. In fact, 
The radio drama we're about to hear is called The Man Who Changed His Mind. It comes from that post-war period. It attacks an old canard about the willingness of Jews to serve in the military. And it was broadcast May 28, 1950, over NBC on The Eternal Light. unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, olive, beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually in the tabernacle of the congregation. And it shall be a statute forever in your generations. Eternal Light. The National Broadcasting Company and its affiliated independent stations make free time available to present The Eternal Light, a program which comes to you under the auspices of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. Today's program in observance of Memorial Day is The Man Who Changed His Mind, by Peter Lyon. Other day, I was talking to a young fella, and he says to me, he says, um... Well, now, mind you, of course, some of them are my best friends. But you gotta admit there's a difference between them and us. I looked at the young fella who said that, and I could see he wasn't kidding. He meant it. Of course, it takes all kinds to make a world, but here it is, halfway through the 20th century, and there are still some with no more mother wit than a webfoot. Now, this young fella, he opens his mouth and keeps right on talking. Fact of the matter is, and I say this, and some of them are my best friends, but still in all, they're the ones who's responsible for all the headaches there are in the world. Well, now, I'm as peaceable and friendly as my wife's Newfoundland pup, but I can take just so much. So I says to this young fella, I says, now sit right down, I says. Clam your mouth up tight and just sit there and listen, because I'm going to tell you a story. He says, um... A story? And I says, yes, sir. This story is called The Parable of the Man Who Knew Enough to Be Able to Change His Mind. Now, I want you to suppose that it's a long time ago. A long 60 years ago. And think of a boy of 10 or 12 who lives in what must be the pleasantest of Connecticut villages, Niantic. Every morning when he gets up, he can gulp down a lungful of salt air off the Atlantic and just be glad he's alive. And on this particular morning, Memorial Day morning it was, he heard the band. The town band playing a few blocks away, and he started to walk in tempo to the brass horns of the band. And all of a sudden, he saw a man. A man with only a left arm and the empty sleeve pinned back where his right arm should have been. Gee! And the man was wearing a coat, a military jacket of dark blue. Gee, Willikers! What's that? What's that you said, boy? 
Nothing. I didn't say nothing. Why, that's funny. I thought I heard someone say G. Willikers. Well, maybe it was that iron deer up there on Miss Tubbs' lawn. Maybe it was. Uh, what's your name, boy? Charles Crawford Smith, Jr. Oh, ah, uh, you're Charles Crawford Smith's boy, are you? How'd you know that? Never mind. I've got my methods of finding things out, and I'm generally right. Oh, I know. It was because I said my name was uh, Charles. No, uh, never mind that. Uh, where are you going, Charlie? Down to watch the parade. You going to march in the parade? Yes, sir, I am. Yes, sir, I most certainly am. I'm going to march in that parade, and all the time I'm marching, I'm going to feel mighty good, too. And you know why? Why? Because when I march in that parade, Charlie, I'm marching with the finest men in the whole town of Niantic. And it's like I'm marching with the finest men in every town, village, and city in the country. All at the same time. The veterans of the Union Army. Right, Charlie, right. That's one thing you can be sure of, boy. Just like the sun rising in the east. Some dodged the draft, some ducked it, and some bought their way out of it. But the best men, the only good men, were the ones that shouldered a gun and marched off to help save the Union. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. There's the band. Time for the parade. How do I look? Fit? Yes, sir. My hair's not all shag nasty now, is it? No, sir. And let's get down to that parade. So then, skipping along in time with the band, hurrying a little to make sure of a good vantage point to watch the parade. The boy took up his position right in front of Mr. Rosen's fishing tackle and bait store. And his heart rose as the flags went by, whipping in the offshore breeze. And his eyes shone as he saw the old soldier who had lost his arm come marching past. And he turned to Mr. Rosen. Say, Mr. Rosen. Hi, Charlie. Say, Mr. Rosen. See that man there, the second one in from the... You mean the one with his right arm gone? Yes, that's the one. Who is he? Well, you know Mr. George Rogers, Charlie. That's his brother, Jim Rogers. Never saw him around town before. No, well, uh, he's a book agent, Charlie. He's on the road most of the time out west and down south. Understand he's just come back to town to stay for a spell. He said all the best men were in the Union Army. I guess that's right, Charlie. But, Mr. Rosen, you weren't in the... I mean... I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say anything Don't to... be embarrassed, Charlie. You see... I've got to go, Mr. Rosen. Well, Charlie, wait, Charlie. I'm sorry, Mr. terrible to be a kid at 10 or 12 and know you've said something wrong and not know what to do about it. That was the first time it had ever happened to young Charlie Smith. But he ran down the street after the parade, caught up with it, caught up with the man whose name was Jim Rogers, marched along beside him, looking up at him for a few dozen yards. Then followed him over to where a big elm tree cast down some welcome shade. And the man unpinned his empty right sleeve and then pinned it back again, more securely, more comfortably. Mr. Rogers? Yeah? Mr. Rogers, did you lose your arm in the war? Yes, Charlie, I did. My right arm was buried in North Carolina, a good deal in advance of the bulk of my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> was it shot off or cut off or with a bayonet? Well, the way it happened, Charlie, was like this. Uh, I was a corporal at the time. Me and maybe seven or eight other fine fellows were... 
walking through a little patch of woods. All of a sudden, the lieutenant who was in charge of our patrol, Kelly, his name was, Lieutenant Kelly. Now, this dumb lieutenant, he, uh... uh Charlie, uh, you'll know about lieutenants, don't you? No, sir. Well, all you need to know about lieutenant's son is this. There never was one of them had enough brains to overflow a thimble. <laughs> Lieutenants. Well, sir, this lieutenant all of a sudden shouts out, we must all get down. He's seen some confederates? Likely. Well, sir, I was a corporal, as I told you. And I decided I wouldn't take orders from that Kelly. So I stood straight up. Ping. A bullet sails right past my ear. Why didn't you duck? Stubborn. Pig-headed, Charlie. Ping. Another bullet. Hit you in the arm? Not yet. Hit my canteen, and I could hear the water begin to trickle out. But you didn't duck? Just because some lieutenant had told me to. Not Jim Rogers. Then, ping. In the arm? In the arm, Charlie. So that proves the lieutenant was right. Mm, uh, well, didn't it? The point is, Charlie, by standing up, I was able to see where their fire was coming from. So our boys could clean their nest out. See, being stubborn sometimes got its points. Uh, what's the matter? Matter with me? Got a big scowl on your face. Oh, I was thinking about what you said about the only good men being in the army. That's right. Well, I was talking to Mr. Rosen. Who? Rosen? Oh, that man that owns the fishing tackle and bait store? That's right. And, well, he's a good man, and he wasn't in the army. Rosen? Him? What's the matter with him? Charlie, uh... He's a Hebrew. A what? He's Jewish, son. Jews didn't fight in the Civil War. Well, don't ask me why, but they didn't. None of them. I don't recall a single one of them fought in the Union Army. And I knew hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men. Not one of them a Jew. Oh. A Jew. Oh. He's a very nice man. There's only one test for a man, son. Did he shoulder a gun and march off to help save the Union and free the slaves? If he did, he's a good man. If he didn't, chewy. No, for some reason it seemed to the boy as he walked slowly home to dinner that the sun had lost some of its warmth and the day some of its gay sparkle. He didn't know why. His thoughts were a tangled hugging away at each other. All he knew was that he admired this newcomer, Mr. Rogers, and he'd always liked Mr. Rosen. Yet, somehow, somewhy, these things did battle. Well, it wasn't so much later that he went to Mr. Rosen's tackle and bait store. He had 40 cents in his fist. He'd earned clipping hedges because uh, he had to pretend his errand was entirely commercial. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Mr. Rosen. Afternoon, Mrs. Rosen. Well, Charlie, going fishing, are you? Mm-hmm. I need a new hook, a big one, and, uh... Yes? How much is that mother pearl spinner? Well, that's 25 cents, Charlie, a quarter. Uh, you get two of these hooks for a nickel, Charlie. Okay, and... Mm, let's see, I've got 10 cents. Can I get some line for 10 cents? Mm, not very much line for 10 cents, Charlie. <laughs> this is, uh... It's a very complicated purchase, isn't it? Yes, sir. Well, then, never mind the line. Just the spinner and the hook. <laughs> very good, young man. Mr. Rosen. Yes? Why weren't you in the Union Army? Well, Charlie, you see... Uh... Why do you ask such a question, Charlie? Oh, I don't know. I it's just... It's all right, Martha. Why not? 
Charlie's curious, and why not? You see, Charlie, some people have something wrong with them, which means they wouldn't be good soldiers. Here. You see these glasses? Yes. Oh, put them on. Go ahead, put them on. Now look through them. What do you see? I can't see anything. It hurts to look through them. Boy. Yes. And what you see when you look through these glasses is about what I see when I don't have them on. <laughs> A man whose eyes are as weak as mine, Charlie, is no use to an army. Understand? Well, was your brother in the army? I don't have any brothers. You know that. Well, wasn't anybody in your whole family in the army? What are you getting at, Charlie? Why do you ask such questions? Well, somebody told me that you were Jews and that no Jews would join the Union Army. Who said that, Charlie? No matter who said it. No matter. No matter. News from Hungary and Russia. And now here. This. But no Charlie. matter. Charlie, listen to me. We are Jews, yes. That's our religion. Just as yours is Congregationalist. And whoever told you that there were no Jews in the Union Army, I don't care who it was, Charlie. He was wrong. Maybe he thought he was right, but he was wrong. And you shouldn't believe what he told you. All right? Well... Now, you ask your mother, Charlie, or your father. See if they don't say the same as me. Okay. And thanks, Mr. Rosen. Well, now, this boy I'm telling you about, there was anyway round about a million things could have distracted him. Climbing trees or kicking a can along the road or, or stopping to inspect what makes a grasshopper hop. Or uh, trying out his brand new Aggie in the shady dust alongside the town hall. But he'd got this question stuck in his 12-year-old head and it just had to be answered for he could do anything else. Charlie, that you? Yeah. What you been up to all morning? Mother, hmm? is it true that the Jews wouldn't join the Union Army during the Civil War? Now, where in the world did you get an idea like that? I, I was just wondering. Just wondering? Just Wondering, is it? So I was talking to Mr. Rosen, and he said I should ask you. Mm. Well, I must say, you've asked some fool questions in your time, Charles Crawford Smith, Jr., but this just about takes the cake. Well, did they join the Army? Mm. Well, sir, it just so happens that I was reading an article about that just a week ago. You find the latest copy of the North American Review, and you can read it for yourself. The North American Review? What does it say? It says there were plenty of Jews in the army. What did you think it would say? Come on now, quick. Scrub your hands good. Dinner's near ready. Mr. Rogers! Yeah? Oh, wondered where you got to, Charlie. Uh, you see this mess of old fish guts here? You know what that means, don't you? Weak fish are running, boy, and you and me are going out there on the sound to do a little chumming. Hmm? Sure, Mr. Rogers, What but... time you got to be home? Six? I guess so. Well, then, we'd best get a move on. Uh, what's that reading matter you got there? <laughs> Won't have much time for reading, boy, when you're chumming. You got to keep your eyes peeled on the water every minute. Well, it's a magazine. Magazine? Do tell. Well, it appeared to me it was a baseball bat. <laughs> 
North American Review. Well, that's a fine magazine, Charlie, but uh, ain't it a mite too intellectual for you? I got it for you, Mr. Rogers. See this article here? It says that there were lots and lots of Jews that fought in the Union Army. Oh, it does, eh? Where is that now? Let me see that. Mm, lots and lots of them, eh? Well, I warrant the man that wrote this was never closer to the front lines than New York City. See, look there. They fought shoulder to shoulder with... Tommy Rot, stuff, boy, all stuff. And I'll write a letter to this magazine that says so. And I know what I'm talking about, because I was there. Editor, North American Review, dear sir. I had served in the field about eight months before being permanently disabled in action and was quite familiar with several regiments. I then transferred to two different recruiting stations, but I cannot recall seeing one Jew in uniform or hearing of any Jewish soldier. In 25 years of travel, always among old soldiers, I have never found any who remembered serving with Jews. Indeed, so marked was this as to become the subject of comment. If so many Jews fought so bravely for their adopted country, surely their champion ought to be able to give their names and the regiments they come to Mr. Rogers, aren't you going to take me fishing today? Hello, Charlie. I was down to the pier. I didn't see you. I figured you might be at home still. Yeah. Yeah? So I came by to see if maybe you'd forgotten or something. Something the matter, Mr. Rogers? Charlie, I... Aren't you feeling good today? I feel bad. That's a certainty. I'm sorry. Yeah. You mind that letter I wrote to the magazine a month or so ago? Sure. You showed me where they printed it. A North American Review. Yeah. Well, I've been getting some answers. Editor sent me a batch of answers, and I got them just this morning. Well, I can't read all of them, Charlie. Why not, Mr. Rogers? Don't dare. Now, here's one. Mrs. Abrams had two sons in the Massachusetts Fifth Volunteers. Both killed at Antietam. Says, if I don't believe her, enclosed, please find a copy of a letter of condolence from the general of the 5th Volunteers Commanding. I can't answer that one. Can't even look at it again. Mr. Rogers, is she Jewish? Appears so, Charlie. Oh. This letter here from one fella gives me the names and regiments of more than 60 soldiers. All Jews, Mr. Rogers? Yeah. You're going to write a letter apologizing to the editor of that magazine, Mr. Rogers? Mm, I don't know, Charlie. I've got to do something. The way it seems to me, an apology. What good is that? An apology. Might make Mrs. Abrams feel better. She lost two sons, Charlie. Doubt if she's looking for apologies. Well, now, here's another letter. From New York. An old soldier called uh, Gerstman. By Jiminy, I'm going to answer this one at least. Mr. Rogers? Served in the army five years, he did. Fought under General Hancock at Fredericksburg, at Antietam, and at Cemetery Ridge at Gettysburg. Rose to the rank of lieutenant, he tells me. It tells me General Hancock, after the Battle of Gettysburg, presented him with his very own sword to show what he thought of this fellow's bravery. Gee. 
You say he's a lieutenant, Mr. Rogers? Oh, now, see here, son. If you get to be a lieutenant up from the ranks, that's not the same thing as just being a lieutenant. If you're up from the ranks, it's a different question altogether. You run along, son. We're not going fishing today. I got to sit down here and write a letter. I'm going to apologize to one of these fellas anyhow. Dear Simon Gerstman, one is never too old to learn, and he's a poor soldier who will not do a comrade justice when he demands it, especially a comrade to whom the glorious Hancock left a sword. You must be worthy to wear it. Any of your countrymen who felt that our immortal flag might float will feel with me that you deserve the laurel wreath instead of the badge of disgrace. I hope you find this letter some atonement for that one which I earlier penned to the magazine. Hi, Charlie. Mr. Rogers, you're all dressed up. With a suitcase. Look pretty good, don't I? You going away, Mr. Rogers? Oh, I'm coming back tomorrow night, Charlie. Don't you worry. You're not going to get rid of me for a while yet. Where are you going? New York. New York? You're taking the train? Yeah. Going down there and meet this Simon Gerstman, Charlie. And I'm going to fetch him back up here. Do you mind that name? Sure. The one with General Hancock's sword. That's the one, boy. He wrote me a letter. Said he was sick. So I'm going to fetch him back up here and make sure he gets well again. Up here in Niantic, you mean? Well, what's wrong with that? Well, you listen here, son. Guess you don't know about this section of the country. Why, do you know that not so long ago, a rich man, a millionaire he was, reached retirement age. He took and he wrote a letter down to the government in Washington. And he asked them where, he says, where is the most healthful part of the whole country for me to retire to? Do you know what the government wrote him back? Niantic? Well, it wasn't right here in Niantic, exactly, but it was only ten miles from here, so I guess that... That goes to show, don't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it sure does. And it's a lot better than any apology, too. I'll be seeing you, Charlie. Jim Rogers was back in Niantic two days later with Simon Gersman from New York. In one respect, the two men were truly alike. For Gersman had lost an arm, too. Don't make no difference, though. You know what, Mr. Gersman? What's that, Charlie? Mr. Rogers and me, all summer we've been going fishing out in the sound. But he makes me do all the rowing, because he's only got just the one arm. Yes? Now I'll sit in the back and do the chumming, because he's got the left arm and you've got the right. And between you, you can do the rowing. facts are all there. You could look it up. Look up the North American Review for 1891. You can read all about how Jim Rogers changed his mind and all about how he nursed Simon Gerstman back to health. Well, as I was saying, I hauled off and I told this young fellow that story. And when I get all through, he looks up at me and says, uh, Mr. Smith. He says, uh, 
Mr. Smith, that all there is to your story? And I says to him, that's all there is to it. That's the parable of the man who knew enough to be able to change his mind. And he says to me, he says, um... Well, but where's the point of the story, Mr. Smith? Where's the payoff? It's got no twist, no snaparoo. So I says to him, if you need to ask me the point, I says, if you're looking for a snaparoo, I says, then your heart is cold and full of foolishness. changed his mind from the eternal light on the Sunday before Memorial Day, just like today, in 1950. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Well, a few hours ago, I promised you a valedictory speech by Chester A. Riley's daughter, and we're going to hear it now, eventually. We apologize for the less-than-stellar audio quality, but we picked this comedy to mark the season of commencement exercises that's now upon us. Listening to this Life of Riley episode, it occurred to me that William Bendix's character might have provided some of the inspiration for Carol O'Connor's persona in All in the Family some 25 years later. Riley is kind of like Archie Bunker without the bigotry. See what you think as you listen to the June 12, 1948 installment of the NBC series, The Life of Riley. Ralph brings you The Life of Riley. Ralph, the shampoo that removes unsightly dandruff in as little as three minutes and leaves hair radiantly clean, radiantly lovely, presents The Life of Riley. With William Bendix as Riley. This is a big week in the Riley household. Daughter Babs is going to graduate from high school. This significant event has aroused varied emotions in the Riley family. Babs is elated. Mrs. Riley is proud. And Riley, Riley is a nervous wreck. Peg, will you please stop pacing the floor? I'm nervous enough. Riley, I'm sitting down. You're pacing. Oh. Now, relax, will you, dear? The commencement isn't until Friday. Well, I can't help it. You don't know what this means to me. For generations, us Riley's have been going to school, studying, plugging, cramming, using our brains. And now, after hundreds of years, one of us is going to graduate. <laughs> well, I just hope you laugh till it happens. Yeah, maybe it ain't going to happen. Where's Bed's final grade? They got mailed out yesterday. Why ain't they here? What if she didn't pass? They'll get here, and don't worry, I'm positive she passed. Oh, well, I'm not so positive. It's no sense for Babs to pass those exams. And I ought to know. I helped her study. She'll still pass. Well, you never know. She, she might have had all the right answers and the teacher asked the wrong questions. Maybe she failed. Oh, that'd be awful if she failed. Oh, don't be such a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist. Oh, Mother, Dad, did it come? The bad news. Did the mail come yet? Well, not yet, but stop worrying. I can't. Well, you can't be sure. Daddy, I'm going to graduate, all right. If there was any doubt, the faculty wouldn't have made me class valedictorian. 
That's right. Oh, that don't prove nothing. When I was going to graduate, they made me the class prophet. <laughs> and the one thing that I couldn't prophesy was that I was going to flunk. Don't worry, I'm going to graduate. Oh, you've got to bed. You just got to. I've been telling everybody. If you don't graduate, I won't be able to hold my head up. Well, how do you think Babs will feel? Well, it won't be so bad for her. She's young. Why don't that mailman show up when he's bringing a bill for me? He's Johnny on the spot. Oh, he'll be here, Riley. Don't he realize how I'm suffering? Oh, just for the Christmas. I'll get even with that mailman. Just for this, I ain't giving him the tie your father always gives me. <laughs> the mail, the mail. The letter. It came, it came, it came. Yeah, I wonder what it says. Well, open it. Huh? Oh, yeah, open it. Where's my fingers? Oh. <laughs> Here they are. Oh, I'm afraid to read it. I'm afraid to read it. Oh, Daddy, let me read no, it. No, I'll read it. I can't see. Everything's a blur. Give me my glasses. You don't wear glasses. <laughs> well, then lend me yours. Oh, Riley, will you give Bab that letter? Just enough, I can see. 50, 90, science, 92, algebra, 84, 76, 85. Hey, hey, congratulate me. I graduated. <laughs> I don't know. He came rushing into the house with a big box under his arm, told me not to go away, and then locked himself in his room. Don't nobody go away. I'm coming out. Now, what can that man be up to? Okay, here I come. Well, what do you think? Daddy. Riley. What on earth is that ridiculous costume? Peg, I'm surprised at your lack of ignorance. <laughs> this is formal afternoon wear for men. Striped pants. Cutaway coat, wing collar, and mascot top. That's what this ridiculous costume is. What for? It's for the graduation. You don't want me to look like a bum. Well, you can't wear that. It's too small for you. Where'd you get it? From Digger Odell. <laughs> he said, he said, here, Riley, I'm lending you this free. You lucky fifth. <laughs> Really, dear. <laughs> you don't have to dress up so fancy. Now, we'll talk about it later. Now, now, Bed, let's rehearse. Rehearse, Daddy? Oh, sure. We don't want to make no mistakes. Now, now, Bed, you take my left arm, and as we march slowly down the aisle... You what? We march down the aisle, and then your brother, Junior, he'll hand us a bouquet of roses. Junior hands us the roses? Now, sure. He's the flower boy, and then... Riley... <laughs> This is a graduation, not a wedding. Oh. Well, I've never seen a graduation. Daddy, but you I don't you... march down an aisle. You sit on the platform, and when they call your name, you step forward and get the diploma. Oh, oh I see. Well, well, after I step forward and get my diploma. For heaven's sake, Riley, Babs is graduating. She gets a diploma. Babs? Yes, Babs. And where am I? You're sitting in the audience, like everybody else. And they don't hand me the diploma? Of course not. No, that don't seem fair, Dad. After all the money I invested in you. Oh, Oh, Daddy. Riley, you must be out of your mind. Did you really expect them to hand you the diploma? Sure, why not? What? Just doesn't make sense. Well, it makes sense to me. After all, who gave birth to her? I did. (laughs) 
All right, you did. I admit it. But who paid her doctor bill and gave her a home? And her a total stranger? I did. <laughs> Dad, begin. I'll listen to you. Right. <clears throat> Honored members of the faculty, fellow students, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, uh, uh, quick. Riley, please don't interrupt. Dad and I are just going over her. Well, whatever you're doing, it's the way. This is more important. Uh, what's in the box, Daddy? Oh, uh-huh, wait you see. I didn't want to tell you about it until I was sure I could get it. Look. Why, it's a formal gown. Yeah. Isn't it gorgeous? Yes. What'd you get it for? Well, for the graduation. For me? <laughs> Well, it certainly ain't for me. I may have a cute figure, but I just can't wear a strapless evening gown. <laughs> but try it out. Riley, Bab can't wear that. But why not? Because she's going to appear on a platform, not a runway. <laughs> no, but you said you have to get a long dress. So... Yes, but not an evening gown, an afternoon dress. And besides, all the girls are wearing white. Oh, they are? Well, it will be different. Why, in this dress, you stand out like a sore thumb. I mean, uh, don't you want to be different? This dress set me back 55 bucks. My life savings. Well, you'll just have to return it. I've already gotten Dad's address. I thought Riley, this... dear, I, I know you mean well, but you've just got to stop interfering. And... Oh, so now I'm interfering. Guess I don't even wait around here. Now, dear, I didn't say that. Well, I apologize. I can take a hint. From now on, I ain't saying another word about this graduation. Handle it your own way. Oh, Daddy, don't be like you that. You won't drag another word out of me. Go on, do it your way. But, Daddy... Babs, let's rehearse your speech. Let's see. For graduation. Oh. Well, go ahead. I ain't saying a word about it, so don't ask me. Well, I'll start from the beginning again, Mother. All right, dear. Today, we students are to be given awards and honors, but the real glory belongs not to us, but to those of you in the audience without whose help and encouragement we would not be receiving our diplomas today. As I look at this sea of upturned faces... Now, wait a minute, Bess. Wait, you can't begin like that. Well, what's wrong with it? Well, you've got to start with a laugh. But this is a serious speech. It don't make no difference. You throw in a laugh, see? And that wakes them up after the principal gets through speaking. <laughs> Now, your first sentence is okay, but then you ought to say, uh, as I look at this sea of turned-up faces, and uh, speaking of the sea, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the commencement. I bumped into a sailor, and, and then you make a sailor joke, and you get a terrific laugh. Oh, fine. Sure, that'll be great. Yes. Oh, but Daddy, well, I... I know what I'm talking about, honey. I had experience. Now, remember when I made that speech at the plant banquet where I worked? The minute I stepped out on that stage and opened my mouth, I got a big laugh. <laughs> no wonder. Your tuxedo vest opened and your dickie slapped you in the face. I didn't mean that. Nobody noticed. Besides, I'm talking about bad speech, not the speech of the banquet. And if it was me making bad but speech... But you're I would, not, you know, dear. Babs is. And she really doesn't need any help. Oh. Right, so now I've got to keep quiet because I'm not educated. Oh, now, Riley, I, I didn't suppose my grammar's not good enough. Well, it's not that. My grammar I... happens to be perfect. And if that's the way you feel about it, from now on, I ain't not never going to open my mouth about this big graduation again. Not never, ever. <laughs> Yeah, Riley. Oh, hello, Jimmy. 
What's eating you, pal? Ah, my wife keeps running my life. Won't even let me help beds with her graduation speech. You know what she said? How should I know? I ain't the kind of a snoop goes around eavesdropping on his next-door neighbor. Boy, I told her off, all right. And you were right. From now on, you should not never open your mouth about the graduation again, not never ever. <laughs> Gillis, you heard. Well, I couldn't help it. I just happened to step outside to go to the mailbox. Oh, you got another bill from the gas company. <laughs> Thanks for tipping me off. I think you're getting a raw deal, Riley. After all, you're the boss of the house. Yeah. Who wakes the supporter? I do. Sure. Who owes for the gas bill? I do. Yeah. Can't open my mouth about anything. Some thank you get for being a father. Believe me, a bachelor is much better off. Yeah, that's the life for, right? A bachelor. Yeah, yeah. now we know it when it's too late. <laughs> I remember when I was a young bachelor, I'd stroll through the park on a Sunday, and I'd see a young father sitting on a bench holding a cute little baby in his arms, and I'd say, that's for me. And now I'm an old married man. I stroll through the park on a Sunday, and I see a young bachelor sitting on a bench holding a cute little baby in his arms, and I say, ooh, that's for me. <laughs> Why, kids, who needs Well, I wouldn't go so far as that. I got a swell wife, and I'm pretty proud of my kids sometimes. Like, like this graduation, that's a big thrill for me. Babs is paying me back for all the heartache. Some pay off. So she lets you go to a graduation with a thousand other people. And afterwards, at the faculty reception, she'll hand you a cup of tea with a stale crumpet. But this you slaved a lifetime? For being trumpet? Wait a minute. Wait, 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 what's this about a reception? Don't tell me she's been convicted. Well, I, I, I guess she didn't get it around to it yet. Well, she better. This here reception is a big sociable event of the whole graduation. It is? Sure. That's when all the kids present the fathers and mothers to the teachers. They're all lined up, see, and then each kid says, um, Professor, may I make a present to you of my father? <laughs> and the professor shakes hands with you. Only when it comes back, he's saying the professor will be shaking hands with an empty face. Because you ain't going to be there. Oh, Gillis, if she does that to me, I... No. No, my Babs wouldn't... Would she? <laughs> oh, I'd love to go, Bruce. All right, then. I'll see you after out by the administration building. Bye. Bert Rogers. Mother, I've got a date. We're going to girls for tea dancing right after the commencement exercise. Oh, that's nice. Oh, but isn't there some kind of faculty reception after the exercises? Oh, oh, nobody goes through that. It's terribly dull. Almost everybody in my class is going to serve. The only girls who are going to the reception are those without dates. Oh, I see. You, you don't mind, do you? Oh, of course not. Don't be silly, dear. This is your graduation bag. And I want you to have a good time. Oh, I almost forgot. I've got your invitations for the commencement. Hey, hey, hey. Where are you, Riley? Hey, hey, where's Beth? i got to find... Oh, see ya, Daddy, here's the invitations for tomorrow. One for you, one for Mother, and one for Junior. And you go into the school through the third street entrance. Is this, uh, all you've got to tell me? Why, what do you mean? Well, what about after the commencement? What, what happens then? Oh, well, after we're all going tea dancing. Oh. oh, well, that's all I wanted to <laughs> But I didn't know about the dancing. <laughs> and uh, guess who's going to be my escort? Well, uh, let me see now. He's uh, somebody you're very fond of. Yes. And he's handsome? Well, I'll say he is. And his name is Bert Roberts. <laughs> Thank you. So excited she forgot my name. <laughs> How 
smallest sound when you say to the teacher, meet my distinguished father, Bert Roberts. Bert Roberts. Bert Roberts. Riley, what on earth are you talking about? The faculty reception. Well, she's talking about Cyril. Who's going to Cyril? I am, with Bert. I'm the one who's going there with Bert. I want to go to the reception. Riley, you're not going anywhere. You mean... Babs is going... You ain't going to introduce me to your teachers at the reception? Why, no, Daddy. You see, nobody... I don't want to hear any more. But, Daddy... Phyllis was right all along. I ain't good enough to meet your teacher. Oh, Riley, will you listen? You're ashamed of me. It's because I'm a poor riveter. You wouldn't feel this way if I was a millionaire riveter. <laughs> oh, now stop it, Riley. She's not ashamed of you. Of course not, Daddy. How can you think I'm through thinking. I'm acting. If I ain't good enough to go with you to the reception, then I ain't good enough to go to your graduation either. You, you see my ticket? Well, I'm tearing it up. Oh, Daddy, please. I'm sure you arguing. My head's made up. <laughs> I ain't going. I got nothing against you, Babs. I still love you. I'll always love you. I wish you the best of luck. And when you're married and have your own kids, I only hope you'll be a happier father than I am. <laughs> the second act of the life of Riley in a moment. From Atlantic to Pacific, folks are saying Prell's terrific. Yes, that's Prell, Procter & Gamble's radiant cream shampoo in the handy tube. You'll love new Prell for two reasons. First, Prell's exclusive radiant cream formula leaves hair more gloriously radiant than any soap shampoo, cream, or liquid. Prell can't leave a dulling soap film. Just radiantly soft, radiantly smooth Prell wash hair. Second, Prell removes unsightly dandruff quickly. In as little as three minutes. Doctor's examination proved it. And that Prell tube's terrific. No messy jars, no broken bottles. And Prell goes farther than any other known shampoo, cream, or liquid. Because it's concentrated for economy. So try the only radiant cream shampoo. Leave Radiant screaming bright, not a bit of dandruff is in sight. Comes in a tube, handy too. We are the L L L shampoo. Bye, Trell shampoo. And now back to the life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. Daddy, Daddy, answer me. Daddy, please come out. It's time we're leaving. Bed. It's almost three o'clock. Mother, Daddy won't come out of his room. He won't even answer me. Riley, it's time to go. Goodbye. I suppose I'm not going. But you've got to go. Riley, open the door this instant. All right, I'll open it. But you ain't going to change my mind. I just ain't going, that's all. Oh, now, Riley, stop acting like an hysterical young bride on her wedding day. I'm not a young bride. I'm an old married woman. <laughs> I mean, I ain't going. But, Daddy, it's my graduation. you just got to be there. Oh, no, no, I ain't good enough. Of course you're good enough. Yeah, where's your proof? <laughs> Bed don't think I'm good enough. Why, I do too, Riley. It's almost three o'clock. We'll be late. Now stop acting like a stubborn mule and come on. I'm telling you for the last time I ain't gone. And I mean positively. You understand simple English? Positively. P-O-G. P-O-S. I ain't going absolutely. All right. 
don't go to Cyril's with Bert. We'll go to the reception and... No, no, Babs. I won't let you do it. I won't let you give up your date just because your father's acting up over nothing. Now, Riley, I'm not going to stand here and argue with you all afternoon. Are you coming? Yes or no? Yeah, no. Daddy, if you're not at my graduation, I'll, I'll never forgive you. Riley, for the last time, are you coming? No. I said no, and I mean no. No. All right, Dad. Let's go. Oh, Dad. Oh, why didn't they have the courtesy to ask me once more? <laughs> What's the use? All your life you work and slave and sacrifice for them, and then what happens to you in the end? Would you really like to know? <laughs> Who said that? Here I am behind you. Digby O'Dell, the friendly undertaker. <laughs> oh, hello, Digger. You shouldn't creep up on people like that. You're the first one who's ever complained. <laughs> Why are you sitting here on this bench right? Waiting for a bus? No, just sitting. I trust your company. Did you notice my advertisement on the back of this pen? No. It says, you are resting here through the courtesy of Digby O'Dell. Uh, should be good for business. Oh, merely a public service. I don't need the business. I've got more orders at my place than I can carry out. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I had your dough, Digger. I'd go someplace out of the city where I can get away from it all. Where there's peace and quiet and I can lie around all day and nobody will bother me. But that takes dough. Not too much. I'd be glad to give you an estimate. <laughs> you see, I know all about traveling. Well, I really couldn't go. I got responsibilities. Even if my family don't care about me. Oh, nonsense. Your brood adores you. No, they don't. Like today. Dad's is graduating. Oh, congratulations. Ah, how well I remember the day I graduated from the Mortician's Academy. My classmates adored me. And even then, they sensed my potentialities. They voted me the student most likely to get to the bottom first. Ah, uh, I remember. Riley, it just occurred to me. If Babs is graduating, why aren't you at the services? I don't. I've got my reason. Today, your place is at your dear daughter's side. You can't let her down. Well, she said... How that... would you like it if I let you down? <laughs> I wouldn't. But, 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 oh... Oh, Digger, you're right. I, I acted like a beast. Now it's too late. No, it isn't. Come, I'll drive you there in my vehicle. You think you've got time? Trust me. You may not be there for the beginning, but I guarantee I'll get you there in time for the finish. <laughs> well, come along. We'd better be shoveling off. Digger, Digger, we're in time. They haven't started the speeches yet. Good. This way, uh, climb over this rope. Just a minute, mister. Where are you going? Well, I, I just want to get through to the audience here. May I see your invitation, please? Invitation? Oh, yeah, sure. I, uh, well, I, I, I tore it up. I'm sorry, sir. No admission without an invitation. Oh, uh, but my daughter... Sorry, Beth, that's the rules. You can't come in. But I gotta... Don't be... argue with him, right? Come over here. I want to speak to you. Yeah, but, Victor, I gotta get in there. I know. Follow me. Where are you going? We're behind the secret platform. Yeah, but the audience... You crawl beneath the platform and come out on the other side. Right in the audience. This way. 
Okay. Watch your head. Yeah. Are you under? Yeah, I'm under. Now let's crawl straight ahead. Yeah. Oh, but you... Dark in here. And it's so stuffy. I can't breathe. It's just like... Please, let's not talk shop. <laughs> Come along. Crawl. What's that right? That's the people up on the platform. Hmm. This is the first time I've ever been under people. Ladies and gentlemen, members Hurry up, Larry. They're starting the speeches. Crawl faster. Yeah, well, something's holding me back. At this time, I have the honor to present the valedictorian for the class of 48, Miss Barbara Wright. That's good. Hurry, hurry. I'm stuck. I can't. I made it. Where's that breeze coming from? <laughs> what breeze? Oh, oh, Digger, that was my pants. I ripped my pants all the way down to my ankles. Honored members of the faculty, fellow students, ladies and gentlemen. Come on, Riley, I've gotten through. Well, I can't go out there. If I go out with these pants, I'll lose face. Today, we students are to be given awards and honors, but the real glory belongs not to us. She's going to think I let her down. She don't know I'm stuck here under the platform. I have have right. receiving our diplomas today. And as I look at this sea of upturned faces, I see my teacher seated there in the first row who guided me patiently along the precipitous path of knowledge. I see my mother who is seated there in the second row. And I see my father who is... who is... Bigger. She don't know what to say. Who is stuck here under the platform? <laughs> yes, it's me, Patsy. I'm right here. I wouldn't let my little girl down. I'm here, all right, in the flesh. <laughs> is there a barrel in the house? <laughs> Riley's will be back in a moment. An all-around favorite. That's Prell, Procter & Gamble's Radiant Cream Shampoo in the handy tube. This is W.K. Bombley of Greenfield, Massachusetts, right? I find Prell equally wonderful for my hair, which is dry, and my daughter's hair, which is somewhat oily. And that delightful, refreshing Prell fragrance really makes shampooing a pleasure. Yes, Prell's a pleasure for two reasons. Because Prell removes embarrassing dandruff quickly, leaves hair radiantly soft, radiantly smooth. You'll sing about Prell. B-O-B-O-L, Prell Shampoo. Leaves her radiant, screaming bite. Not a bit of dandruff is in sight. Comes in a tube, handy too. B-R-E-L-L, Prell Shampoo. Well, I can't get over it. I still can't get over it. Oh, relax, Peg, it's all over. You don't realize what sort of a spectacle you made of yourself. Yeah, I know. Maybe I did act kind of unwise. Unwise? You almost ruined her whole speech. <laughs> but she made a great comeback. Did you hear them applaud when she finished? Oh, she's a great kid. And she was so glad that I showed up. Oh, the way you act sometimes, you don't deserve to have a wonderful daughter like that. Oh, you're, you're right, Duncan. Imagine. I actually thought my fancy was ashamed of me. How dumb can a father get? Well, I don't know, dear, but keep on trying and you'll break your own record. Rock 
Procter & Gamble invite you to join us again next week to hear The Life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. The script is by Alan Lipscott and Reuben Schiff. Direction by Mitch Lindemann. Music by Lou Cosmo. This is Riley as Paula Winslow. Digger O'Dell is John Brown. Babs is Barbara Island. And the principal is Alan Reed. The Life of Riley is produced by Irving Brecker. And remember, for radiantly clean, lovely hair, get the shampoo in the tube. T-R-E-L-L, Trell Shampoo. In the factory. On the farm. In the home. Yes, everywhere. Everybody depends on L-A-V-A, Lava Soap, to get dirty hands really clean. Because lava gets the stubborn dirt and grime ordinary wash-ups miss. In every inch of lava's snowy lather, 50,000 tiny scrubbers remove deep dirt from skin crevices between fingers around fingernails. Yes, with lava, hands soiled by the dirtiest dirt, the grimiest grime comes sparkling clean in 30 to 50 seconds. Mr. Robert Gaylord of Greensboro, North Carolina, says... I'm a printer, and lava soap's one of my best friends. It sure takes lava to get the ink and grime ordinary wash-ups miss. Yep, the lava wash-up gets my hands really clean, in a jiffy. And remember, lava is gentle enough even for children's tender skin. So get the soap that gets the dirt. Get lava soap. <laughs> This is Ken Niles reminding you to listen again next week when Prell brings you The Life of Riley. And now stay tuned for Truth or Consequence. Good night. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. An episode of The Life of Riley from the late spring of 1948. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. We're going to go out with another tribute to the centennial of the arranger, composer, and conductor Nelson Riddle. Late in his career, he collaborated with the brilliant singer Linda Ronstadt on a series of platinum-selling albums of American standards. Here's the title tune from the second of those LPs, released by Asylum Records in 1983, Bob Haggart and Johnny Burke's What's New. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Michael Kidd and Kenny Pierog, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.
haven't met since then. Gee, but it's nice to see you again. Changed. I still love you so. 